Welcome into the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. There's a song out there that a lot of you know about. It's a song by the boss. And the beginning lyrics of it say, I saw her standing on her front lawn, just a twirl in her baton. Me and her went for a ride, sir, and, and 10 innocent people died. You may be familiar with it. It's called Nebraska. And when we bring up Nebraska, of course, we bring up the name Charles Starkweather. Now, some of you may not know that that song, Nebraska, is about Charles Starkweather and his unfortunate companion, Carol Ann Fugate. A lot of you do know about it, especially if you're true crime fans or into the realm of true crime. Now, this wouldn't be the first time we've come across the topic of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. In fact, it was less than a year ago that we covered another book about Carol Ann Fugate. But this book, folks, that I read over the weekend is the quintessential book, I believe, about Charles Sarkweather. As a matter of fact, our guest today, Harry N. McLean, let's just say lived through the experience. When I say lived through the experience, we're talking same state, same town, same neighborhood, same everything. Harry was in the thick of it. And we're talking about not only an award-winning writer who is in the thick of it, but we're talking about a man who lived through the era, knew the people, surrounding the case and speaks from a first person point of view and really breaks this case down as thoroughly as you can break it down and really has some interesting perspective on this case we're going to jump into it right away and let's get into it and and talk with our guests today about charles starkweather and about his reign of terror on nebraska Harry McLean graduated from Shattuck School, Lawrence University, and the University of Denver College of Law. As a lawyer, he worked as a trial attorney for the Securities and Exchange Commission in Washington, D.C., adjunct professor at the University of Denver Law School, and juvenile court magistrate in Denver. In the Carter administration, he served as general counsel of the Peace Corps. On his return to Denver, he worked as special counsel to Governor Richard Lamb and began his career as an arbitrator and mediator. Also, when it comes to his writing career, he's the author of the true crime classic In Broad Daylight, A Murder in Skidmore, Missouri, which won an Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime and was a New York Times bestseller for 12 weeks, selling over a million copies. His second book, Once Upon a Time, A True Story of Memory, Murder, and the Law, was named a New York Times notable book and served as the basis for Buried, the Emmy-nominated Showtime series. His third book, The Past is Never Dead, The Trial of James Ford Seal and Mississippi's Search for Redemption, was shortlisted for the William Saroyan International Prize for Writing. His first novel, The Joy of Killing, was selected as one of the 10 best novels of 2015 by the Denver Post. Now, I also want to bring up the fact that this particular book, Starkweather, has been critically acclaimed by some of his peers in the field, including Catherine Ramsland and Ron Francell, who we've had on the show, both, both those uh, true crime authors, which is amazing in itself. I, I got to tell you, folks, after reading the book itself, it is amazing. So let's bring him on without further ado. Here he is, our guest here today on True Crime Tuesday, Harry McLean. Harry, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good, Tim. How are you doing? Absolutely fabulous. Uh, I, first of all, I, I do have to tip my cap to you. This, this book is the 
quintessential book on Charles Starkweather and on Carol Ann Fugate. Let's start out by talking about you first, sir, in that you grew up in the area, in that particular area of Nebraska. And, and let's start off with your story first. What was it that drew you to want to write about Starkweather and Fugate? And why not just leave that in the past? Why not just continue with what you've had as an illustrious career? Why not write an autobiography? Because you've had quite the life yourself. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, I'm not sure everybody would agree with you, but there's really kind of two two questions there. And one is why I didn't write it earlier. I mean, I was uh, 15 when Charlie went on his rampage with Carol living in Lincoln, uh, about a mile away from the house of one of his victims, three of his victims. And my older brother was in school with him and has stories to tell about Charlie at uh, Irving Junior High. But in any event, I... Uh, uh, kind of stayed away from it on purpose for years because I felt um, I, I really didn't want to get into it because getting into it was going to involve going back to my childhood and boyhood, which was not a particularly good time in my life. So I kind of steered away from it. I would I would walk up to it every five or ten years, something would happen, and I'd take a take a look at it, and I'd go, nah, I, I'm not sure I want to do this. Then in February 2020 the pardon board in the state of Nebraska turned down Carol Fugate's request for a pardon. That caught me at a particular time in my life and in my career where I stopped and said, you know, I don't know how thoroughly anybody has ever looked at Carol Fugate's guilt or innocence in this. I went on the current affair where she was interviewed and she's talking about actually the song Nebraska where Charlie uh, says, me and, me, and, me and her, we had us some fun. And she says, had us some fun. And she breaks into tears. It's very, very dramatic. She's always claimed she was innocent. She claimed she was innocent on that show. My reaction to it was either she's a great actress or she is innocent or she now believes she's innocent. One of the three. And that kind of was the hook uh, for me right there, because, you know, I am a lawyer, I've been a judge, guilt or innocence, what are the facts, what do the facts show? And as I went through the, uh, the books and the movie, uh, I'm sorry, shown the books that have been written, uh, I, I wasn't at all convinced that a thorough, uh, neutral approach to Carol's involvement in the 10 murders had ever been done. And that, that hook kind of pulled me past the resistance to it. And I ended up jumping, uh, jumping all the way in. And what you see is the book. Harry, if I can, uh, before we get into a little bit into your tie to, to this case, I want to ask a little bit about the romanticism of why we need to pull Carol Ann into this. And that's this. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a, First of all, her she's still alive, and I've yeah. and I've talked to her, and so the guilt, her guilt or innocence is a is a historical fact. Um, she's been convicted. She did go to jail for seventeen years. Um, her conviction stands on the record, so that's that's one that's one reason right there to get that straight. The second one is that uh, you mentioned the word romanticism. Um, 
Charlie and Carol were romanticized. Their trip through Nebraska and up into Wyoming and their capture and his electrocution became romanticized, beginning with a movie called Badland, um, directed and produced by Terry Malick, starring um, Martin Sheen as, as Charlie and Sissy Spacek as Carol. And it's it's kind of a, it's not a real documented recitation of, of them and the crimes, but it is clearly them. And it presents a romantic version of them, or, or at least you can make that case that it does. Mm-hmm. And then when Bruce Springsteen's uh, song came out in Nebraska, which you mentioned, that also has kind of a haunting romantic feel to it. So in some quarters, some aspects of the culture, it was seen kind of like Bonnie and Clyde. Here's this young couple. He kind of looks like James Dean. He's uh, 19. She's 14. She's, she's cute in kind of a rough way. And they go off on this murder spree through Nebraska and Wyoming. And that's kind of the way it was settling in culture, in the, in the culture that they were kind of in that line of, um, of killers that had, you know, been, had happened in, in America. And that's, that's where it was. And that's clearly not where it should be. So the record on that needs to be straightened out. And lastly, as I researched it and got into it, I didn't start off with this um, assumption, but as I got into it, I started seeing that Starkweather was really that this, this episode was really the beginning of the, of the whole mass murder phenomena in our culture. And that's a major theme of the book is that uh, Charlie was the fast, first mass murderer in modern America. And what that, this is 1958, of course, and what that really says is what it's referring to is Charlie and his uh, marriage, if you want to use the word unholy marriage, with, with television. And television picked up on the story, and that was a key to its turning into a romantic story in our culture. You bring up some interesting points about Charlie as well. Uh, his character, the way he's formed, he's, he's really chastised, bullied um, for some deformities. Can you talk a little bit as to who Charlie Starkweather was before the killing spree? Charlie was five foot five. Uh, the average man or full grown boy was uh, five foot eight in those days. He had flaming red hair that he got from his mother. Thick really thick hair that he wore in the fashion of the ducktail at the time. And it's been described as hair like Bozo the Clowns or Lucille Ball. Um, he was bow-legged. He was, he was severely bow-legged. You can see it in his stance, and I guess it was even more apparent when he walked. And he was also pigeon-toed, a slightly pigeon-toed, and he had a lisp. And he was the butt of, of uh, taunting and abuse and ridicule uh, almost from his first day in school. And it went on through grade school. And one day an incident happened with a bunch of the kids that were following him down the street, boys and girls. And he ended up going home um, and his father talked to him about it. And he said, look, from now on, if that stuff happens, 
don't don't hide from it. Hit him, smack him. And that kind of was the threshold for Charlie into into violence. And then he so that so then he did start doing that. And that's what my brother witnessed and saw on the on the school grounds. He he smacked people in the face and he just didn't smack them and watch them fall to the ground. He'd kick them in the head when they were down, which was way outside the norm of boys fighting in those days. And he got to be a feared character in the junior high school system. He ended up transferring to another school, but his reputation preceded him there. And that was kind of the beginning of his mutation into the uh, I don't want to say the beginning. That's that's how he mutated into the violent character that he was. I mean, he was he was angry, um, and now he was violent. And that kind of and then the key was he met Carol Fugate, who was at that time twelve years old. Which is to us in today's society, twelve years old is incredibly young for someone of that age. Which at the time he would have been seventeen, correct? To be right. dating. I mean, most most parents these days would not allow that type of relationship. But at that time in nine, in the nineteen fifties, is that really still acceptable, or is that even outside the norm? No, it it, it was not acceptable. I mean, if you were in junior high. Maybe you traded ID bracelets or something, but formal formal dating, no, because most kids in junior high didn't have cars anyway. But uh, no, this was outside the norm. The stepfather, Carol's stepfather, objected to it. Uh, her mother did not object to it and said she's entitled to see whoever she wants. Now, why she took that position um, is is unknown to me. It was it was very tolerant and. Charlie took full advantage of it, and pretty soon he and Carol were a couple, and it was a little late to kind of undo it. But um, that's what that's what Carol's mother tried to do to undo it, which in the end led to her led to her homicide. And Charlie, of course, was not, as you pointed out, not accepted by the family. The majority of the family, particularly, was it her stepfather? Really, really did not like Charlie. Well, there was a lot of hostility between the two. I mean, he he saw the problem. Charlie was a he was a hood or a grease or whatever the right language is, is in 1958. He wasn't going to even go on into high school. He was all about cars, and his employment was kind of here and there. And he wasn't any good for this 12, 13 year old daughter who had come from a an, an abused family situation with a drunken father and and a violent father and so the, the last thing she needed at that point was some older guy with a car and smoke cigarettes to kind of come into her life and play the savior which is what he did it isn't inferred in the book harry but i have to ask this uh do you think having met carol having gotten to know carol that she is trying to seek out at that point in her life, some sort of father figure through Charlie? Because it seems like she's got the abusive situation at home. The stepfather doesn't seem like he's that caring. Is Charlie really in her world someone that's looking after her, yet he is abusive? He is the mirror image of her father slash stepfather? 
Yeah, in a way, what the the, the phrase that I came across uh, that psychologists uh, use occasionally is the word "sitting duck," and what she was a sitting duck for somebody like Charlie, and it it it, it sets up. It's behind a lot of situations like like this where the girl uh, ends up with a, an abusive male and is, you know has trouble eating, stays with it. And what they mean is that she was in this. Her, her stepfather was basically a decent man. He didn't drink and he wasn't violent. He wasn't particularly, I don't think she cared for him a lot, but she had a roof over her head and, and ate three meals a day there, which wasn't the case with when she was with her father and, and mother. Um, so what they mean by that is that she wants to be, you know, she went to six different schools in five years, never had any friends really because that, that doesn't fit that, that dynamic. What she wanted was, or needed, was to be the first, the most important person to someone. And, um, you know, she wanted to be in first place with somebody. She wanted to be the most important person to another human being. And people like Charlie understand that, whether they consciously understand it or it's some sort of subconscious thing. They can sense somebody that's it's in that sort of situation. And Charlie did, and he made her first, most important person to him, and that's that's kind of the basic dynamic between the two of them. And it it seems like even though they, you know, she she has this affinity for him, there's not love there, is there? Well, uh, it it. In a, in a, it's kind of a definition of love, and I hate to get hate to get into that, but uh, it was it was affection. They they kind of filled each other's needs, and there was an affection. Um, it was the first girlfriend that Charlie had, and he was good to her. He bought her all sorts of things, took her to places, um, out to eat, the stock car races, and so forth. So they became. They claimed that they were in love. Carol would, would claim. Um, in her trial that she was in love with him um, and, and Charlie would say the same thing. It's a twisted sort of love, but it's not something that you see that uh, infrequently, really. Well, the reason I say there wasn't really love there, if you, if you want to take a deep psychological dive into it, you could argue, can a sociopath really, and a, and a psychopath really love anybody? You know, I mean, they can have an affinity or an affection for something to a certain point, but to be able to feel a deep love for somebody, I don't think they can. But that's no, that, that's true. I mean, that's certainly the definition of a sociopath, and I don't think under that definition that he that he did love her. No, I would agree with you on that. And then, as far as Carol goes, there's the reason why I say I don't know that it, you know it could be a kid crush, but. The reason I say maybe she didn't necessarily love him, and I'll bring this up, and then I'll, I, I want you to kind of expound on it a little bit. Um, before Charlie really starts to get into the beginning of his killing spree, she wants to break up with him. She wants to, she doesn't want anything to do with him. And it's only when, before they, before Charlie sets out on this killing spree and takes her with him, that she starts to bond with him again for lack of a better term. I, I don't have a better term for that, Harry. I'm sorry. Um, but, but she's 
insisting that she wants nothing more to do with him. She's ready to be rid of him. That's, that's a 180 away from I'm in love with him. It's only through trauma bonding that she's decided that she's in love with him. So really, trauma bonding has brought her closer to him. It's not a true love bond. Am I wrong about that? And tell me why I'm wrong about that. Well, the, the situation beforehand, before the murders of her parents, um, is somewhat teenage-like. I mean, she admits this in the trial that, yeah, she told Charlie not to come by on, on Sunday, Sunday before this happened. It would have been January 19th, 1958. And they had a conversation, an argument, and she told him to leave and not come back. And he said, really? She said, yeah. And then the mother jumps into it and says, yeah, don't come back. But that had happened before. Uh, you know, teenagers break up and get back together again a lot. And she admitted that in the trial, that this had happened before. So, and as a matter of fact, the next day in school, um, Charlie's brother was talking to her and she told him uh, to tell Charlie to come around again. So I'm not sure that she was, she wanted to be free of him, I think, but I'm not sure that she was. That, that sort of entanglement in a relationship like that, that is, that is that pathological, is real hard to walk away from as a lot of battered women will, will, will attest to. So she was in it and she was out of it at the same time. Um, in the, in the, in the trauma of it all, um, uh, to really answer that, I've got to give some more facts of what happened. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's, let's jump into what exactly happened with the beginning of this killing spree. Okay, so on the 21st, Charlie comes over. She's at school. He comes over in mid-early afternoon, ostensibly to go hunting with her stepfather, which is, 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 uh, is, is just simply not the case. It's a smokescreen. Um, it's my opinion that I take in the book that he came over to kill the father that day. Um, and the, the motivation for him doing that is set forth in some, some detail. He did kill them that day. He killed the mother, the stepfather, and Carol's little sister, two-and-a-half-year-old Betty Jean, who Carol was quite close to. The question was, the, the basic question in the whole book is, was Carol there when Charlie killed her parents? She always claimed that she wasn't. Charlie claimed that she wasn't for the first ten times he told the story. All of a sudden, his story changes and she was there. Why it's important is that if she was there, uh, she, she, her story was that Charlie threatened, Charlie had her parents. She comes home, her parents aren't there. Charlie says, I've got him hidden away. If you try and run, I will kill them. She attests, she says, has always said that she bought that story and that she did not run, even though she had the opportunity because she believed Charlie had her parents now hidden away. Uh, now, if she was there, obviously, uh, when she shot him, she knows they're dead. So then the question is, why doesn't she leave then when she has opportunities? That path leads to guilt in the time uh, and culture of the day. Um, we didn't have trauma psychology at the time. There was no such thing as PTSD, association, repressed memories, multiple personality, anything like that. Mm-hmm did not exist uh, in the psychology world. 
if she wasn't there, if she comes home after school and the parents are gone and, and her story is correct, then the first time she saw what Charlie, well, they stayed there, there for, for five or six days. Charlie had put the parents and the little girl out in a, uh, in a couple of outbuildings behind the house. And that's where they were. And they finally end up leaving when the, her grandmother threatens to come in and, and uh, see what's going on. But if, if she wasn't there when he killed her parents and little sister, the first time she saw anything like that was about three hours later when they were out in Bennett, Nebraska, a small town about 20 miles away, and he blows the head off of a good friend of his for no apparent reason and walks up behind him as he's going into his house to help him get some, uh, to get the car unstuck. So he comes up behind him. They both say this and raises a shotgun and blows his head off. At that point, you've got a 14 year old girl who has just seen a horrible murder by a friend, by Charlie of his best friend. It's getting dark. They're out in the countryside what is she to do? Um, and obviously, you know, she and any human being in that situation is going to be traumatized. She's scared for her own life, obviously, at that point. And so she is in that traumatic situation from then on through the killings. For the next 48 hours, roughly, they kill um, seven more people, six more people. Um, and she, and she's there for every one of them. She participates in the sense that often she will hold the gun on, on somebody or tell Charlie that the police are coming. But the theory of my book is that she wasn't in, she was in a traumatized state. Today we would say she was in PTSD or she had dissociated. And when she describes what happens when she sees Charlie kill one of his friends like that, she used it. She said, I froze. Um, I couldn't move. I saw myself out there. I'm trying to scream, but I'm not hearing anything. This is in 1958. That is today dissociation language. Yeah. That's what the psychologists say happens. Can't, it's one of the things that can happen. You freeze. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what, in my view, that's what happened to her. So to some extent, that disables her what might be otherwise criminal behavior. Because if you are if you are just in a dissociated state like that, what it means is you're not in control, you know, of, of what you're doing. And in this case, it would be under the dress uh, was the legal phrase at the time of Charlie Starkwood. So that that's a long way of saying trying to answer your question, but to kind of set set it up, she was with him for the rest of the killings. And the question is, what was her level of participation? And and the truth is that. The only evidence against her was Charlie Starkweather's uh, final testimony was that she was there when she killed her parents and that she killed um, two of the people in, in the last, well, second to last killing site, the Ward House, that she in fact killed them herself. And they had that in her uh, statement, which some people call a confession. It's not really, but she was interrogated by police by the Douglas Wyoming police and the Lincoln police for eight hours uh, without a parent, without a lawyer, 
uh, without any adult in her behalf. And the last part of it, she was in the mental hospital in Lincoln, and they got this statement from her. And that statement in Charlie is all they had. If you if you dismiss Charlie as being inherently unreliable, which any fact finder would, if you look at that statement today, which would never, ever, ever be allowed into evidence, it wouldn't even get close to evidence in a trial. There's nothing. There's nothing to convict her at all. So I've kind of gotten off the point of your question. No, here, no, no, so. you haven't. Actually, you're you're kind of teasing where we're going here in the second half of the program. So here's what we'll do, Harry. We'll take our break right here. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the two killings that that Caroline Fugate is actually accused by Charlie of doing. And we'll mm-hmm. we'll tease that a little bit here. We'll talk a little bit in depth about that. We will talk about Carol Ann's journey after because uh, both both Charles and and Carol are uh, convicted of crimes. We'll talk a little bit about Charles's fate. We'll talk a little bit about okay. Carol Ann's fate. And we'll talk about and this is the question I want to set you up for by the end of the program, Harry, just so you have a little bit of a heads up here and that's this. The question is, did Carol Ann Fugate ever truly become her true self? In life, and that is, did she ever truly find herself? And at what point did she truly find herself? I want you to think about that. Okay. Uh, we all, at at one point or another, figure out who we are. Did Caroline ever find out who she truly was as a person? And I want to ask you that question: When did when did Caroline truly find herself? And has she yet? Um, so. I'll ask that question at the end of the program. I, I have a feeling from reading the book, I, I think I know what your answer is. Um, okay. We'll ask that at the end of the show. When we come back, more with Harry McLean. The book is The Untold Story of the Killing Spree That Changed America, Starkweather. And this is the comprehensive book on Charles Starkweather and Caroline Fugate. I recommend you get it. It is in the description of our show here. We have a link to pick up this book. And folks, I recommend you get it during the break here. It is it is an awesome book, folks. It is uh, any and everything Starkweather and Caroline Fugates. It, it is detailed. It is comprehensive. It is everything you need to know on this case. Get it while we're in the break. When we come back, more on Charles Starkweather and Caroline Fugate. When we come back on the best in true crime podcasting, this is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is Harry McLean. The book is The Untold Story of the Killing Spree That Changed America, Starkweather. And before we left you, we were talking about who did what in this case. Uh, Before we left, we were talking to our guest, Harry McLean, who's the author of this book, about the accusations that Charles Starkweather, who was the serial killer, for lack of a better term, that that killed, is he is he credited? I, I don't have a better word for it. Credited with eleven or twelve deaths in his spree. Well, it kind of depends when you when you talk to him um, and and who he's talking to, the like the jury or to the prosecutor or his parents. Uh, when they were arrested in Wyoming, he confessed to the 10 murders that Carol, that, that were in the last week. And then he confessed to one that had a murder he had committed 
in the previous November, which they didn't even uh, know he was involved in. So in in the beginning, he, he confesses to everything. He starts to pull those back as time goes on and the trial approaches. Uh, and in the end, I think he claimed at various times Carol had killed uh, two people herself, herself or was up to four. Okay. Let's talk about one of the incidences that he claims that Carol committed. Um, let's talk about Robert Jensen and that scenario that happened while they were out on the road. Uh, uh, Charles had a weird way of putting cars in ditches. I don't know what it was, um, whether it be he was falling asleep or he was distracted or as he claimed, he just needed a little sex to keep him up, whatever the, the case may be. Why was it, Harry, that he kept putting cars in ditches and he couldn't keep them on the road? Uh, and then he had a way of, of course, he needed to keep switching vehicles. What was the scenario with with uh, Robert Jensen and why he needed to uh, get a hold of him and his girlfriend at the time? And what happened in that scenario? He, he had put his car in a ditch three times uh, on, on a little lane going up to the to his farmer's house, to his to his friend's house. And it is a narrow little lane. It's got ditches on either side of it. It's not really even a, even a driveway, but it's but that he kept backing into it or going forward into it. And he finally gave up uh, trying to get it out. And he and Carol are walking down uh, a county road. He's carrying before ten. Uh, he's carrying a, sorry, he's carrying the 22, she's carrying a 410. And, uh, they're hitchhiking. It's dark by this point, probably eight o'clock at night. And this car comes over and you're in Nebraska, it comes down the road and it's Bob Jensen and his girlfriend, Carol King. Uh, he's 17, she's 16, sweethearts in, in the local school system there. Uh, and naturally they stop. <clears throat> That's the way. The Midwest was, and to some extent is. They they pull over, and Charlie and Carol get in, and in not too long a time, Charlie makes it clear that he's going to steal the car, and that he's going to. Uh, he says he's going to put them in a cellar, kind of a storm cellar, and put the lid down, and people will come in and uh, let him out. In the course of this, Carol he asked Carol to get Jensen's wallet and take the money from it, in which she does. She takes it from Jensen's wallet, puts it in Charlie's wallet. And the reason that's important is that that sets up the felony murder. Charlie then takes Jensen and King, Bobby, and uh, and Carol to the cellar. And initially he says he killed both of them. He eventually changes his story on that, but... Uh, initially, he says he, he shot both of them to death with the 22, and Carol was not, Carol Fugate was not there for the killing. She was in a car about like 25 miles, 25 feet away, yards away, I guess. And um, the charge that is then brought against her and Charlie is murder, first degree murder, and what they call felony murder. A felony murder is a murder, is a it is a crime that takes place in the commission of a murder. And in this case, the crime was robbery, uh, taking the money from Bobby Jensen's wallet. 
and then and then Bobby Jensen's killed. So you've got the robbery and the murder, and that's the felony murder. And they charged her actually with the murder and with the felony murder. She was convicted of the felony murder. She was not convicted of actually participating in the murder itself. Charlie confessed right away. He was executed in the electric chair 15 months later. This is before um, the whole federal constitution uh, came down, the Bill of Rights came down on the states. And so mm-hmm. it was a very rapid, very rapid appellate process. Carol was convicted of the felony murder and sentenced to life in prison. Uh, she was 15 at the time she was convicted. She stayed in the York Reformatory for 17 years. She got out in 1976 when she was 32 or 33. And uh, she was a model prisoner. She had a perfect record. Uh, no not even the slightest discipline for 17 years. She completed every program they had. She uh, sat for Sunday school at the local church and she took care of the kids in the Sunday school at the local church. She got a kind of a certificate as a medical aide. She was, uh, you know, quite an outstanding inmate and everybody in in the institution was trying to get her a program for years, which she finally got. She then moved up to. Well, be- uh, before we before I'm we get not. before we get to that, Harry, I, we're, I don't want to okay. get to the end yet. I, 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 what, there's still more I want to talk about as far as the case goes, um, okay. because that leads into my last question of the the show, and I, I don't want to get there yet. I do want to talk about the other thing that that Charlie accused Caroline of of or the other. The other crime that Charlie accused Caroline of of committing, and that was, of course, he he claims that that Caroline did the atrocity to Carol King, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. He also claims that when they went to the Ward household, that he had something to do with. Was it stabbing the maid? Was it Lillian? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So, can you explain the 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 scenario that day at the Ward household as well? So our audience has an idea of what happened there. They were, the Wards were a very prominent, wealthy uh, family in Lincoln. Um, all you know, head of the, the on the board of the, the vestry of the church in the country club, and they'd both been to the University of Nebraska. And uh, they lived in a fancy colonial house not far from the country club. Charlie and Carol came back from Bennett that night uh, after the killings and sat in a car parked about a block away from the ward house throughout the night. In the morning, they went inside the house and during the course of the day, um, the wife, well, the wife and the maid, Lillian Bensel and the, and, the, and the wife, Claire Ward, were there during the course of the day they were both killed. There's a lot of factual disputes about who did what, whom, and when. Um, in, in the end, they leave that night about five or six o'clock at night. And Charlie says there was only, well, so I'm sorry. Mr. Ward came back about six o'clock and he was shot to death. 
Charlie's always given himself credit for a shooting Lauer Ward. He also admitted early on that he had killed both Clara Ward and the maid. He killed all three of them. As time went on and he was giving more formal statements, uh, he took it back and said, there was only one person dead in the house when I left, meaning Mr. Ward, and Im- implying that Carol had killed uh, Clara Ward and William Fenthal. And <clears throat> that's what they, um, that gets you up to nine murders if you don't go back to December. And anyway, they, they fled that the house in Lincoln that night about the time that the police had found the bodies in Bennett. Yikes. All right. So initially, Charlie says, Carol Ann has nothing to do with the maid, eventually changes his story, makes people think that Carol Ann did have something to do with the maid. Um with this, now when, of course, after Charlie has gotten the electric chair, and it was Caroline's wish that before he had gotten the electric chair, that he would somehow say something that would would turn people's thoughts and attitudes away from her being guilty of these crimes or would admonish her from from being guilty of these crimes or would 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 clear her name so to speak it never happened in fact if anything he grew colder and dis- more distant towards her and he did uh take the stand against her why do you suppose he grew more colder and distant towards her i thought the idea was you know the idea was he wanted to keep her out of it. Why all of a sudden did he want to bring her in tighter? What was the idea? Well, there's a couple of explanations, and the explanation uh, made in another book called The Twelfth Victim is that when Charlie learned that she didn't want to talk to him and that, and that didn't want anything to do with him anymore, this was a note given uh written by her and given to a deputy sheriff who took it to Charlie when Charlie wanted to talk to her. She said, I don't, I don't want to see you anymore. Basically, I don't want anything to do with you. That that changed him. Up until then, he said, I killed everybody. Um, and that that kind of gave his, his anger over that and this sense of loss set him up then to implicate her in these murders. My theory is that, that, um, you know, his goal at, at, at that point was to go out in the blaze of, of glory, um, killing, killing Lawman on the way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't quite happen, but it was pretty close to it. It was an execution scene, which is almost as dramatic as being killed by the Lawman. The one thing he needed was he needed Carol there by his side to that scene in his fantasy. He needed to go out in a blaze of glory with his girlfriend, as Bruce Springsteen would say, sitting on his lap. That phrase came from him. There's a great debate about who said that. Um, I looked into it, one of those side tracks you get into, and I'm, I'm convinced he said it because it, it, fits, it fits with his whole approach to their relationship and his life. If that's the case, 
he needs Carol to be convicted and sentenced to death just as he is. She won't be on his lap, obviously, but she will be dead, and he thinks they will be together then on the other side. So he needs to have her convicted, and he she, he gives um, you know the accusations that she was involved in. And during her trial, he's feeding information to the district attorney um, that will help the prosecution of her. So that that's my theory, and uh, and I'm sticking by it. There's also an interesting lyric in that song too, um, and I, I want—I—I I, I don't know if this is a direct quote from Starkweather either. I think this is just poetic license by Springsteen. But I'll, I'll read you the lyric here, Harry, and I want—I want your thoughts on it. It's the very last lyric in the song, or the very last verse. It says they declared me unfit to live. Said, said into that great void, my soul be be hurled. They want to know why I did what I did. Well, sir, I guess there's just a meanness in this world. Do you really think Starkweather was so avant-garde about the fact that he was what he was, and that's just all there was to it? No, I, I think that's, that's Springsteen's uh, coloring of it. it. It's true in the sense that, that the world had treated him Badly in his view, with all the ridicule and so forth, and never paid any attention to him. He was a garbage man. He was never going to be anything more than a garbage man. He was, you know, short and kind of weird looking, and didn't have any future. Um, and so, but the, you know, the word meanness kind of denotes a different sort of character that you walk around uh, hostile and angry toward everybody you meet, and. Um, that 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 wasn't Charlie. I I think that's Springsteen's take on Charlie. It's not that far off, but it's also a word that Charlie would never use. He would never use to describe himself. Yeah, yeah. I, I that the lyrics up until that point seem pretty accurate, but then you get to that meanness part, and you go, yeah, he just never meanness suggests there's a victim mentality there. Yeah. Starkweather never seemed like he had a victim mentality. No, and you know, the other thing that Springsteen does, he, and he changes the lyric. He said, I don't mind going to the electric chair as long as my pretty baby is on my lap. Uh, Charlie never said pretty baby. He did say as long as Carol is on my lap. But that's kind of the whole romanticism sort of thing. It's, it's a more romantic, kind of a sexier language to say my pretty baby is sitting in my and that that phrase you know every time you ever see the stark weather thing mentioned or talked about or discussed that phrase comes in there one way or another yeah i, I that's an affectation that he, he uses from album to album though so i, I yeah that is a, a purely a springsteen thing the pretty baby thing is is purely springsteen that's that's for sure that's for sure yeah um, so you've got, you've got Starkweather trying to lure Carol Ann to the electric chair with him. But the other question I have here, Harry, is doesn't he realize at this time that considering the times that what it would look like for the state to put a woman in the electric chair? I mean, this is, this is the age of chivalry it, to put a woman in the electric chair would, would be abhorrent, wouldn't it? Well, first of all, She's a child yes. in the eyes of the law. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that, that's what is overlooked so frequently for reasons that are, I can describe it in, 
in in Nebraska. They don't see her as a child, but she is a child. And Charlie, um, he what he believe what what my theory is. He knows she's not going to get electrocuted for uh, felony murder. He needs to be tied in to stabbing the the uh, maid to death. It's a horrible, brutal stabbing. Uh, Twelve or thirteen different stab wounds through her heart and her lungs and in her back. And I think he believes that's the only way she is going to have a chance of getting the death penalty. So he feeds the prosecutor a lot of information about that crime in order to make that happen. I don't think he has the, oh, kind of the intellectual capacity to wonder whether a jury would actually do that or not. I think he, I think he thought if he got her convicted of stabbing and made to death, you know, she might die herself. True. Very true. There's something when Carol's in court that kind of goes against her a little bit. And some of the nuances I picked up from reading your book. And again, the book is the untold story of the killing spree that changed America, Starkweather. And we do have a link in the description of this program. Again, I encourage you to click on that link and get the book folks. The thing that weighs against Carol a little bit is the fact that she has been so affected by the traumas that have been forced upon her that I almost feel like she doesn't know how to react to some of the things that are happening in court. It's almost hard for her to emote. For some of us, if we if we were to see some of the things that Carol had seen while she was on the road with, with Charlie Starkweather, we would be a puddle. We'd be a mess. We'd be, you know, we'd be crying constantly or we'd be... We'd be a mess. We'd be a shaking mess. For Carol, though, I think she almost came off sometimes cold and distant. Can you speak to that for a minute as to how her reactions came off sometimes in the media, in the press, and to the people in the courtroom and how they might have been misconstrued? Well, I mean, actually, you're right. It's, it's, it's amazing that she held together at all at age 14. Let's assume her story is true. At age 14, she's subjected to uh, seven murders, eight murders in the course of 48 hours. She's then you know, picked up and put in a mental hospital in Lincoln, Nebraska, so that they didn't have facilities for juvenile girls, and held there for eight months awaiting trial. Her parents are dead. Uh, she's got a sister, and that's about it in terms of any friends or adults helping her out. And her way, my view is that when she was around her uh, violent alcoholic father, uh, she learned how to survive it by kind of dissociating, by getting this kind of tough uh, attitude where you're not going to touch me, I'm not getting close to you, stay away, and I'm not going to feel stuff either. And so she had learned to dissociate, in my theory, uh, in her childhood. And when this happened, she kind of fell back into that way of coping with it. And that came across as very cold and very remorseless. Um, she gave short clip answers. She didn't smile. Uh, she didn't relax. was very kind of robotic. And that turned a lot of people off. It turned the press against her. No question about that. And it turned a lot of the other 
she, she gave a press conference right before her trial, which was a terrible mistake. Yeah. And in the press conference, she comes across as very cold. I've, I've watched it. And it, it, it just unfeeling, whole robotic person. And that, I think that really hurt her with the jury. On the other hand, she was never going to walk, you know? Yeah. yeah. She was never going to walk out of that courtroom an innocent person. I don't care what she did or how, you know, how she appeared. They were going to convict her in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1950 of something. Absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So the other question I have, too, before we, we move on a bit here is, is you know, you mentioned that, that mental institution that she's in. One of the things that kind of took the staff aback about her was that she kept crying for her mother and her, her sister who are gone. They're, they're dead, but she's not aware of that. And one of the things that she's told throughout the entire spree is that her, her mother, her sister, and her stepfather are being held uh, by a gang, supposedly, that, that Charlie's put together. And if she just cooperates, she'll see them again. That she assumes that they're alive. But she's told eventually that, uh, don't you know, Carol? Don't you know about them? And there's some things that you may, when you, when you read your book, Harry, that you think may be a little suspect. One of those things happening at the, at the ward house, that, that they clipped out pictures out of the newspaper of not only themselves, but of her stepfather, her mother, and her sister, but that Charlie wouldn't let her read the articles. That that maybe just that alone sounds a little suspect. That that maybe, you know, well, she had to have known they were dead, right? Wouldn't you think that that some of this is a little suspect, or does this all line up for you? No, it doesn't. It doesn't all line up. Uh, absolutely not. There, there are things she said and did, which uh, normally we would say that's the behavior of a, of a guilty person, like warning Charlie, uh, looking out the window and warning Charlie when uh, Lower Ward's car pulled into the driveway, holding the gun on the maid, for example, um, when Charlie told her to. On the clippings, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear by the ward house that she knew something was wrong with her parents, that that story didn't work, but what she's able to process cognitively at that point and think through and add up, uh, is highly questionable. If she's been through seven murders in less than 48 hours at age 14, um, her, her ability to kind of add things up, and then act like to run away or to confront him or shoot him is, is pretty well shut down. And I think that explains, um, if that's true, that explains the fact she kind of admits at some point that she knew maybe her parents were, had, had come to harm by the time she was at the, at the word house. So that, that kind of, but you know, then she's still, when she is captured, she says, are my parents dead? Now she says that to everybody. She asks the sheriff. She asks the county attorney. She asks the matron, are my parents dead? Are my parents dead? Now, if she still thinks that if she knows they're dead and she's asking that, the only reason she would do it would be to set up that, that explanation in a trial. She's not that, she's not that smart. 
Or is there a, a second explanation of the fact that there's so much guilt there or that there's so much, so much trauma there that she's put a block in her own mind, a mental block in her own mind that she's forgotten it. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, the whole process, there's a whole body of knowledge now called brain science and I won't go through it all. It's in the book, but yeah. what happens when the brain, particularly of a child is threatened uh, the way hers would have been threatened watching these murders is that it, it gets a disabled. The cognitive brain gets disabled and the reptilian part of the brain takes over and, and tells it what to do. And a lot of it is just don't do anything, just freeze. Mm-hmm. You've heard the fight, flight, freeze thing. Freeze is the one where you have no chance of getting away. And I, in, in a sense, I think she just wasn't able to process inform- this information and then say, here's what I should do about it. You know, I should run away or I should shoot him. That, that sort of thinking, uh, she, was not, she was not capable of thinking like that uh, after the second, third murder. So let me jump to where you were before I, I had stopped you. And that is, you'd mentioned that Carol Ann served, what did you say it was, 17 years in prison? 17 years. Okay. Correct. 17 years. And then she was paroled. She ended up moving to Michigan. Go ahead and pick it up from there. What happened to Carol Ann after that? Um, she lived with a family for a couple of years, and she worked in a hospital. She worked in the same hospital for uh, over 20 years. She had a good record. Once again, never fired, never disciplined, never, you know, arrested for stealing stuff or any sort of aberrant behavior that that I could find. And I did go through, you know, the record systems that I could get access to. And uh, she read read books. She liked uh, fiction, mystery books from the library. She went on a trip to Mexico with her girlfriends. All normal very normal behavior. Um, she had a boyfriend for 10 years. He ended up being kind of a jerk. She got married um, to a fellow who had uh, four stepsons. And um, she also worked as a nanny after her medical job for four hours every night for three years. And uh, pretty much a normal normal life for a single person, for a single woman uh, on her own. She, she handled it pretty well, actually, and she never got in trouble. Which is interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, jail can scare a person into wanting to go straight and wanting to be on the straight and narrow. And, and by all means and accounts, as you've put in this brilliant book, she, she was a model citizen and prisoner and did it went above and beyond what she she could have done in prison to be paroled. Uh, she was she was the perfect prisoner. Uh, took full advantage of every rehabilitative process she could have. Yeah. So so if you're to if you're to think that she's guilty, consciously guilty of any murder, any serious crime, but but particularly murder uh, in that spree, you're going to say that uh, at age 14, she had lived the first 13 years of her life pretty normal. I mean, for, for a kid who had been what she, through what she had been through, she was in pretty good shape. She mm-hmm. wasn't a juvenile delinquent. Mm-hmm. 
she wasn't kicked out of classes or arrested for anything. So then for a week, she turns into a monster. She's there when Charlie kills her mother, stepfather, and her precious little sister. And the monster continues on then willingly in the murder of seven more people. Then when that's over, she turns back into a normal, well-adjusted citizen. That's just not likely. You know, I mean, that's just, that's an absurd scenario. Not such a thing as a psychotic break in your mind? Yeah, but then how do you recover from it, you know? And you could you could also argue, well, maybe she was a multiple personality. She was the evil Carol and the good Carol. Uh, but the problem with that theory is that um, multiple switch under the theory, they, they go back and forth between the two. She would have been good and then a monster, a good Carol monster for a week and then good Carol for the next 40 years, which doesn't fit the definition. Or maybe she becomes a chameleon to fit in with her environment and then drops it as soon as she's away from that environment. I mean, the minute she's away from Charlie, you know, she can change back into who she truly is. And that is a good person. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a theory. It doesn't, um, it doesn't fit what I know about her psychology though. So here, as we come into the, the end of the program here, Harry, I'll ask you this question. And that is, at what point did Carol Ann Fugate truly find herself? When did Carol Ann Fugate become Carol Ann Fugate? Yeah, that's, uh, I've been thinking about that. You, you warned me it was coming up, mm-hmm. and, and that's, a, that, that's a tough one. Uh, first of all, I don't think um, in her mind she's, level, she's able to think at that level of consciousness where she, in fact, would wonder that herself. Uh, am I, you know, is this the authentic Carol? But, you know, we certainly can do that. And I, I think that she probably has never made it there to whoever she really is. The reason being that in those early years, her question was survival. And she did what she had to do to survive. And that doesn't allow you to down the path of becoming who you really are. Uh, she had a year or so with her stepdad where life was okay if she had a little sister. That's probably the happiest period of her life. But from 14 on, uh, she's living in a personality that is constructed to allow her to survive. Because even if she wasn't guilty of actually doing she has to live with those memories, those images of what went on in that, in that uh, six day period. And, uh, you know, watching your mother and your little sister, I mean, I mean, that destroys people, whether they're, uh, involved or not. Some people never recover from that in order. She did recover in the sense that she went along and led a fairly normal life. Mm-hmm. But I think she had to, had to keep herself constructed the way she had, developed over the years in order to do that is she still at the point where the name charles starkweather or charlie starkweather still breaks open the scab and she starts to bleed that 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 brings back the memory that's so hard to say and i you know when i did visit her uh in in a nursing home i i had heard she couldn't talk very well because she had a stroke and, and she couldn't 
but I did not uh, mention that name or mention the the killings. I, the shape she was in, that I knew she was in, that I saw she was in, uh, nothing was going to be gained by me other than some, you know, weird test to see if that would happen. Yeah. I didn't mention Charlie. I had pictures of her mother, pictures of her parents, uh, of her little sister. Um, so that's kind of speculative. I, I don't know where her uh, sense of that time period is now. And I'm greatly curious about it, but I didn't know how to get back into it without traumatizing her all over again. It's kind of a weird question, Harry, but you know, we, we like to think of our afterlife and, and who we're going to see when we cross over and who's going to be there waiting for us. Is it heaven or hell if Caroline crosses over and Charlie Starkweather is there? If he's there, uh, that's got to be hell for her, even if it's a decent landscape. If that's who she's got to spend eternity with. Uh, you know, I, I, she's probably, probably, well, I don't know, but I, I would, if she's aware enough to see what she went through, she would be miserable if she ended up with him um, on, on the other side. And she did, you know, you're, you're right. Here, here's another thing. Um, she wrote letters to him trying to get him. What she really cared about was the accusation that she had been there when her family was murdered. Uh, the other things, they bothered her too, but that was the one that hung her up the most. And she wrote letters to Charlie and Charlie's mother and the president of the United States and the governor. But to Charlie, she said, you know the truth come forward and say, you know, ad admit it. And look, you need a minister there or whatever. Um, and, and in a way that adds to her credibility because if, if she did it and it wasn't true, then you'd be saying she did it just for a show that otherwise, so after what, afterwards she could point to it and say, see, I wasn't guilty. I wouldn't have written this. She's not that clever, you know? So, and, and, um, that's just, just another thought. Yeah. kind of supporting the idea that she really wasn't there when her parents were killed, which kind of sets the whole direction of whatever happens after that. And I guess my last question for, here for you, Harry, today is, is what is your personal opinion? What do you think of the situation? Do you think, do you think Carol Ann was physically involved in these murders or do you think she was an innocent bystander? If I look at it, as a judge, I would say overwhelmingly innocent. You can't convict somebody uh, based on a on a statement that it was involuntarily and in you know coerced, as I said earlier, on uh, solely on Charlie's testimony. So, from a legal matter, absolutely no burden of proof, nothing beyond a reasonable doubt, not even close, not even an unreasonable doubt. There was no nothing to convict her on. As a, as a person, um, I have some doubts about it, but dropping all the way back objectively still as a person, do those doubts make me say, yeah, she was involved in the murders? No, they're not that strong. Okay. Excellent. Well, 
I tell you, sir, you have you have put together the quintessential book on this case, and really, it's it's something that. I really hope that that this book becomes a textbook that they put in schools because this this book is so amazing in the detail that surrounds this case that I mean you put you put us right into Nebraska at that time uh I mean it's it's you get the the feel of the landscape of what that time was like um I mean you absolutely just you're you're there you're there for the entire uh time frame from from 19 the 1950s all the way to the 1970s and, and you put it so brilliantly uh i i can't tell you my appreciation of, of being able to spend time with this book uh for the time that let i had me, let me just say that what you said about um creating nebraska in 1958 and putting the reader there is makes me feel better than almost anything somebody could say that was a really hard thing to do um, particularly for a nonfiction writer to create Nebraska for a 43 year old reader to make them feel that. So the fact that that worked for you makes me feel quite good. I appreciate it. Well, it, the pleasure was all mine, sir. I, I, I really, really appreciate the, the fact that I, I got to spend time with this book that I got to, I mean, jump right into the scenario. It, it was, it was, uh, you know, I, I've read a few books on on this case, and and there hasn't been anything that's been this, not just this detailed, but that has been this comprehensive and and get you this involved, both not only in the details of this case, but you really do get emotionally involved by the end of the book because you now care because you've you've gotten you've gotten perspective from people who were there, you've gotten perspective. And you've gotten perspective from your perspective, and, and you get your perspective on it. You, you've gotten perspective from people who have been there, and and that and 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 been in the time. And that's that's the one thing that you know. You can have authors who have done the research, and and from an outside perspective, oh yeah, I know the case. I've gone over it. I've poured over the research. Very few people have lived through the time. Very few people have touched the soil very few people have lived in the town very few people have had boots on the ground while it happened and to have that authentic experience and then to share it with us is a gift so that's that's essentially what you've done is you've wrapped up that experience you've presented it to us you've given us that gift and and uh, Harry, I just I appreciate it. So it's it's uh, I really was very appreciative of, of being able to read this book uh, this past weekend. I really was. Well, those are very very kind words, and I accept them. And any writer wants to hear that uh, their work was accepted and appreciated, and made the reader feel something. So. Thank you so much, and it's been a really interesting time talking with you, Tim. Yeah, thank you. Folks, uh, we're going to lighten things up a little bit now uh, as we uh, thank Harry and bid him adieu. It's time now for us to change gears. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's, it's Crayon News Story Time. What happened with this dude, Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? I need help. And what's the problem? I'm too high. 
You're too high. Yeah. It's that time, that time once again you all look forward to. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. Folks, here's the deal. Uh, you got Bruiser last week. Uh, you know, he came back from WrestleCon. And all was well that ended well. He, he survived through all the wrestling, through all the producing. And then all of a sudden, uh, he, he got felled by an illness, which we now found out was COVID. <laughs> COVID of all things. Uh, so we're hoping he's back tomorrow. But in the meantime, uh, strange, strange coincidences have happened. And I was at this conference this past weekend, uh, this Winter Wonderland, uh, something like Winter Wonderland with a twist or something or another. We'll find out here in a second. I don't know the exact name of it, but the person I was there with does. So we brought her in today. Jessica Freeberg is with us. Hi, Jess. Woo, hey. What was the name of that expo we were at this weekend? Oh, I think it was Enchanted Awakenings. See? Yes. Leave it to the author to remember a long title. <laughs> I don't ever remember long titles, but I'm When you said I would remember, I had a little panic attack. I was like, wait, do I remember? Then it <laughs> popped in. That's what it was. Enchanted Awakenings, um, something like um, Supernatural with a twist. No, no, it wasn't Supernatural. What was it with a twist? There was something with a twist in there. It was with a twist. It's, it's, I think la they did it in the spring last year or something, uh. and so... The twist was now it's a winter wonderland. I yes, think. yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Winter wonderland with a twist or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, it was. It was a great conference. It was, it was just too short. It was just uh, ten to five that one day, but it was fun. Yeah, yeah. One day, all the fun you could handle, though. So I got to see you and give you a big bear hug. Yeah, I look forward to that the most. That was the most fun out of the entire day. Um, that in part. That and the technical difficulties I had before my talk. I don't know if I told you about that. Did you know what happened? Okay, so I'll, I'll tell everybody here just real quick. Evidently, uh, I don't know, is Mercury in retrograde now? I think so, yes. Ah, uh, that had to be it. Um, <laughs> so I, my talk was supposed to start at 10.30. I go into the room at 10.10 10 or 10.15 to start setting up my talk. And I walked into the room expecting that there was going to be, you know, some sort of setup or something. Well, I saw a little slot in the wall where the, the USB uh, drive could go. So I put the USB drive in the wall going, okay, SimSolabim, then the screen will come alive, right? Well, it doesn't work that <laughs> yeah. way, right? So strike one against me. So then I went, oh, okay, well, there's a keyboard and a mouse over, you know, it's, it's just like a little conference room, right? Because it's being held in a little convention area. So I went, yeah. okay, so maybe I got to go over to the keyboard and the mouse over in the corner and then shake it alive. That's what she said. Um, and then uh, and then see if it all pops up. And that's what she said again. And so I go over to the keyboard and the mouse and I, you know, I shake it loose and, and uh, well, I get a screen that comes up. And I'm like, all right, we're on our way. But then I need a password. And there oh, was no. no book with no password, right? <laughs> Okay, so then Jenny, who's one of the organizers of the conference, comes in. She goes, all right, well, I'm going to go down and ask the, uh, the the building soup who's there what the password is. And they said, well, it's on the underside of the keyboard. Well, it wasn't on the underside of the keyboard. Oh, no. So we couldn't figure out how to get into the the uh, the computer that's attached to the screen because it's a really cool setup. It's all integrated. So it's a Windows screen computer deal all in one setting it's like a, imagine a big tv on a wall right yeah it's supposed to make it really easy yeah it's supposed to be incredibly easy right it's supposed yeah. to be set up for business professionals well luckily i brought my laptop 
So and it had a it had an HDMI cord hanging right off the side of it, right? Oh, good. Right, easy. Did that work? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Except for by the time I got it hooked in and it recognized my my PC, my PC then decided it wanted to do updates and it wanted to repair itself right then and there. So I said, you know what, folks, why don't you just come in, have a seat, and I'll just wing the first part of my presentation why this decides it wants to update itself well then when it heard that i was just going to start to wing the beginning of my presentation well then it straightened up and decided to fly right and then powerpoint came up oh wonderful because evidently i'm just messing with you yeah because technology doesn't like to be upstaged it wants to be presented right which is why i didn't use any technology in my presentation i was the presentation i just came and spoke See, and that's the thing. A lot of people didn't because I offered to let, uh, I, I told Jenny, well, well, if anybody needs to use a, a laptop, I'll just leave my laptop here. And she goes, no, I think everybody's got it covered. I don't know if that was the case or not. But <laughs> I usually do. It's kind of weird because I normally do bring a PowerPoint because I mm-hmm. feel like I need something to keep me on track. Right. Otherwise, I'll just like go off on a tangent about monsters and ghosts and you'll never get me out of there in half an hour, an hour, whatever time we have. Yes. Yeah. And they were shorter presentations too. They were. And she did have to kick me out. She came in like 15 after 15 minutes after our time was up and she was like pointing at her wrist. (laughs) Yep. I got that too. I got the, I got the time cue because I ended up starting five minutes late and I was starting to go over. I was, I would think I was, what was I, five minutes over? And I, I knew I, I was conscious of the time because the clock was on the wall to my right. So I'm like, all right, I got I to gotta start speeding it up, speeding it up. And I was right about maybe three slides away when I knew I was really getting into late time. And, and I was like, all right, I really got to speed this up. I got to punch it up. So. I'm getting to the point where I'm wrapping it up and I'm like, anybody, any questions, you know? And, and by the time I had started to get into it, when PowerPoint kicked in, the room all of a sudden filled up magically. Like, like I had about a half rooms full of people. Then all of a sudden the room was yeah. full. Right. And I'm like, come on in people. I haven't really technically all the way started yet. So come on, come on. So then I had a full room and, and I was great, grateful for that. And, and then all of a sudden the technology comes up and I even played the intro theme on the PowerPoint. We all kind of boogied for two seconds and then we're off and running. So it was, it was a good deal. So it ended up going, yeah, it ended up going well. So, uh, yeah. So hopefully next time, uh, next time we, we all can do it again and maybe my technology will work. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it'll be the same <laughs> embarrassing thing all over again. So I want to thank the Gurneys for for that, uh, uh, what did you call it? The Enchanted? Enchanted Expo with a twist. Win- Winter Wonderland with a twist. That's what it was. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I. So many words. It was wonderful, though. They were yeah. so, they did such a nice job of putting it together. There were so many cool vendors there. Yes. I apologize. Can you hear my dog crying right now? No, no, I can't. No. Oh my gosh. Is, is the dog crying? Go ahead and lift it. You yeah. bring the dog up. I've, sure. I've got to go down and actually pull something out from under my bookshelf for them or they won't stop. So. Oh, that's fine. No, that's fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, so, yeah, we want to thank uh, want to thank the Gurneys, uh, thank uh, Jenny and Bonnie for uh, everything they did for the conference, which again was in, uh, oh, that's what it is. Is, it a ten- is that a tennis ball you're holding there? That's a tennis ball? Yeah. So that's what it is. Ball. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have one of those too that I play with as well here at home. So, 
Um, but uh, it was a wonderful conference. And again, uh, if you missed out, you missed out. Hey, you missed a good time. Um, but uh, we'll keep you updated if they're doing another conference, uh, which I think Bonnie said they didn't have one planned necessarily for the future, but they're working on it. So, yeah. I'll be there if they do. They're yeah. fun. Same, same here, same here. Speaking of, before we get into dumb crime, stupid criminals, do you have something coming up soon? Yeah, I have a couple things. Actually, I really jam-packed my December like a lunatic. Like, there's not enough going on when you have three kids and it's Christmas time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I have um, an event coming up in St. Paul at one of my favorite houses. It's called The Manor, and it was once dubbed the most mysterious house in St. Paul. That is coming up on Saturday, December 6th. We have two different time slots that have two hour and chunks of time for investigations and kind of going over the history of the house. Um, All of our proceeds are going to sponsor a 3D pop-up museum and gallery that opened up in St. Louis Park. So we're doing it as a fundraiser for that. Nice. And then I have in January our... January event at the Palmer House and we're doing like a creative retreat so it's a four day event Thursday Friday Saturday and everyone goes home on Sunday but we have lots of like workshops and activities and lots of art and painting and that kind of stuff going on that weekend and writing so great and we'll and put, of course ghost hunting and of course ghost hunting. <laughs> that's right we'll put up links in the description of this program so you can get access to those events and you can check it out for yourself and access to Jessica's website as well in the description of this program. So you can check out those events and you can check out those, uh, not only check out those events, but go to those events as well and support those causes. So there you go. Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals this week, Jessica. Boy, oh boy, do we have crazy, stupid stories for you. I'm so ready. (laughs) You're so ready. Uh, (laughs) We're talking, first of all, oh my gosh, um, Okay, the craziest police chase you've ever seen, television, live, or otherwise, would be what? Can you think of one off the top of your head? Well, I mean, O.J. Simpson, but... Yeah, I mean, that that was pretty crazy. That was pretty crazy. (laughs) Like the chase that never ended. Um, You know, my husband actually showed me some videos the other day of some crazy ones that ended in, like, car, like, going over another car and flipping through the air and then bursting into flames. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was wild. There was one here in Minnesota uh, earlier this year where the the car goes over, was it the 494 bridge, the one that went over and landed yes. landed on the bottom part of the highway? They, I saw that. They go over the overpass, managed to hit the bottom of the, the highway. They fell, what, a couple stories? Yeah. The people in the car lived. Yeah. Unhinged. Yeah, they, they stole a car and they just drove it off the bridge. Yeah, just but nobody was hurt. Yeah. Right off the overpass. To me, Crazy. which is insane in a police chase. This police chase, however, uh, I think you're pretty much going to get caught. This driver led police on a chase while towing a mobile home. What? <laughs> That's how we're opening it today, Jess. We're going to Excelsior Springs, Missouri, where it's not often that police pursue an oversized load. But on Thanksgiving night, officers in Missouri certainly did. And we're not talking about how much they had to eat for dinner. (laughs) Just putting it to you that way. Excelsior Springs police released dash cam footage last week of an attempted traffic stop. The truck they tried to pull over was towing a mobile home. When it failed to stop, police began a pursuit. This according to KCTV. 
video voiced over by Sergeant Craven, discusses the pursuit of a driver who had been traveling all over the roadway. Officers attempted and failed to use stop sticks, but eventually <laughs> stop sticks on a mobile home being towed. What? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but eventually we're able to stop the man and take him into custody. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a couple different guesses here, Jess. How fast do you think they're going if they're towing a mobile home? I was just going to say, how fast could they possibly be going towing a mobile home? I mean, I would have to say they cannot go over like 45 miles an hour. It has to be top speed pulling that, right? Yeah. Were they going like 80? No, no, no. They weren't going 80. <laughs> um, go lower. Go lower. I'll give you two more guesses. So one more. Or, or, give me your okay, second so guess. Okay, so lower. Second guess, lower. Okay. All right. We're going to say 25 miles an hour. A little higher. Little higher, mm-hmm. thirty. Exactly. Wow, I feel like they could almost like run up beside it and like oh, <laughs> knock on the door. <laughs> right. They could take a hard running start and jump on top of the mobile home. Uh, the driver was going about thirty miles an hour, according to Craven. His truck and mobile home were damaged in the chase. Seems like a good waste of a truck and mobile home to be running from the cops. Yeah. Did he have like his family was in the back, like eating Thanksgiving dinner? Like, <laughs> No gas hoop to cook, but you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it's not every day that officers find themselves in pursuit with a house. Police wrote on Facebook. <laughs> I would think it's rare if never that happens. Just saying. Speaking of homes, Jess, a man convicted of murdering his wife for refusing to appear on Zombie House Renovations, the reality TV show. No way. Yeah. And I'm intrigued. It's for the weirdest reason, too. David Tronez, I believe is how it's pronounced, is T-R-O-N-N-E-S, was sentenced to life for murdering Shanti Cooper Tronez, who or maybe Trons, who discovered he had lied about his fortune. A jury found a Florida man guilty of first-degree murder for killing his wife after she refused to appear on the reality TV show Zombie House Flipping with him. Have you ever seen Zombie House Flipping? I have, and I like it. It's really fun. Yeah. Uh, And after he was exposed for lying about inheriting millions, according to reports, David Trons was sentenced to life in prison by a judge on Wednesday for the 2018 murder of Shanty Cooper Trons, who was found covered in blood and partially submerged in a bathtub in their Orlando, Florida home, according to WESH2 and Fox 35 Orlando and the Orlando Sentinel. Trons, who initially claimed his wife slipped and fell in the bathtub, previously pleaded not guilty and was found mentally competent to stand trial earlier this year, despite a diagnosis of schizophrenia. When Cooper Trons married Trons, she believed that she had inherited between four and six million dollars from his father. But after the wedding, she kept Getting struck with all the bills, people close to her recalled after she was brutally beaten and strangled in the Florida home that Trons had spent money renovating for the reality TV show Zombie House Flipping. So essentially, she's getting bills thinking, well, these should easily be getting paid. We're worth between four and six million dollars, right? Yeah. Why are these not getting taken care of? A news release from the state attorney's office obtained by the Orlando Sentinel states Cooper Tron's refusal to appear on the show upset Tron's to the point that it led to her murder. 
Trons had told police that on the day of the murder, he had pulled her from the tub and carried her to the living room, although they were both dry when emergency responders arrived minutes later. A medical examiner later found that Cooper Trons died from blunt force trauma to the head and strangulation. Four months after her death, her fake millionaire husband was arrested and charged with her murder. Authorities have alleged that Trons killed his wife of about a year in their Orlando neighborhood after she learned he not only did not have the millions she thought he did, but he also allegedly had a penchant for going to bathhouses for anonymous sex with men. Oh, wow. There's more than one secret here. He sounds like a gem. (laughs) He sounds like a gem. He sounds like a a lottery prize. (laughs) Uh, We all thought we knew David Trons, a friend of Trons, uh, previously told people. Come to find out, what we knew was a facade. He was living a total lie. When the trial began last week, News 6 reporter Emily McLeod wrote on X, formerly Twitter, from inside the courtroom and reported that in opening statements, prosecutors said that he that the uh, couple began fighting in 2017 over their home renovation project, which prosecutors coined a money pit. In interviews with police, friends and relatives have called Trons a miser and claimed that the wife, who was 11 years younger than him, married him for his money, but ultimately bought everything. Trons even refused to pay for more than one-third of the rent on a house that they had previously shared because her young son also lived there. Her friend, Melissa Berzinski, later alleged that to police. Interesting. Hmm. Well, I suppose now they could be on that other show, Murder House Flip. You Have know, you seen that one? I, I haven't seen it, but I know of a house that was on that show. Because really? it is just two houses down from where a cousin used to live in in, no uh, in Florida. Yeah. Okay. I've seen all of them because I love it. And I wish they would have done more than two seasons. But yeah. It's, it's, a, house, it's a house that's in Pasco County, Florida. Ooh, I'm going to have to watch them again. I think yeah. they're only on Roku TV. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to, to get it if you don't have the Roku TV. But they're worth watching. If you like, you know, home improvement and murder shows, it's like the perfect combo. Yeah, it 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 uh, it was a pretty grisly murder, and it got flipped pretty quick. We'll put it that way. <laughs> and there was blood everywhere in that house. I don't know. Yeah, if, yeah. It's wild. When I watched them, it's like there was one where the guy had like he had basically, you know, cut his wife into pieces and then cooked her body in the kitchen and when they took apart the bathroom, when they came in, they're like, you're taking a bath in the same bathtub where he dismembered her body. And they were like, Oh yeah. And they pulled up the floor to like remodel it. And there was just like all this human blood and and tissue still like in that had gotten underneath of the floor. I'm like, Oh my gosh, how you've been living there for like two years, getting out of your shower clean and stepping on this nastiness. Oh. You couldn't see it with your visual eyes, but when they pulled it up, you were like, oh, so sick. Oh. Now, okay, so from a paranormal standpoint, too, you, you also have to think, well, is the spirit of that person still hanging around? Is there hauntings mm. going on? It had to be. I don't know if everyone would notice it, but I feel like the sensitive person like would definitely have an awareness of just the energy of that type of thing that happens yeah. there. 
but yeah, there's no way I'm like making pasta on the same stovetop that some guy like boiled his wife's head. No, no. Hard uh, pass. No. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's why I think it's, it's probably healthy to be in a state where they, they have to disclose if a murder's happened in that house. Yeah. And, and not such a great thing if you're in a state where they don't have to. Yeah. They, a lot of them don't unless you ask. Like we bought a house. Did I ever tell you this story? No. We bought a house in Nebraska. It was our first house. And I went in and I just had this like not great feeling about it, but it was a really cute house and it was in our price range. And I asked the realtor if the person that had lived there before us had died in the house and they said no. Um, and so we, then we went to the closing of the house and I asked again, everyone in the room, including the selling agent, I was like, you just really need to know if someone died in this house. And they're like, oh no, no. And I find out like three months after we move in that the woman who lived there before us committed suicide in the house. Oh. And I was like seeing things. I mean, I knew immediately, like as soon as we moved in, I was like, there's something not right in this house. And like, I sometimes she would be like in the doorway of our bedroom and just standing there looking at us. I would see her. And sometimes I would see her like laying on the floor of our bathroom crying. And I was telling my husband, I'm like, this, this house is haunted. Wow. <laughs> So the owner of the real estate company that sold it to us, so we found out then the selling agent was actually the woman's cousin. So she totally knew that she had died in the house and she knew the circumstances of her death. So she lied to us. Um, and we had the president of this real estate company come to our house for like coffee one morning so I could explain to him, I can't live here because I'm seeing this dead woman in my house all the time. <laughs> He's just sitting there looking at me like, are you serious? And I'm like, I'm so serious. Wow. You have to get me out of this house. They ended up buying it back, but it was terrible. But they don't have to disclose to you unless you ask. And because I asked and they lied, they had to buy it back. That is amazing. That I don't know how to respond to that. I just don't know how to <laughs> respond to that. I I mean that's that's wonderful that they bought it back, but I I I wonder if you actually had to take that to court how would how a, a judge would respond to that or a jury would respond I don't respond know. To that. And maybe they didn't legally have to buy it back, but I did tell him like I would be on every news station to tell everyone that you guys sold me this house and lied about it. And I don't mind telling people I see dead people. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it would be an interesting news story. I know that. And I know it would be, it would be featured on every newscast because it's a different <laughs> news story. And we were young. I mean, I was like 23 years old. I was just this like cute kid. I'm like, you sold me a murder, a death house. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. I'll tell you that. Things are, are not, uh, never quiet in your world, are they, Jess? I'll tell you that. Not usually. No, no, that's for sure. Well, if you want to talk interesting stories here, Jess, boy, do I have one here for you. <laughs> I'm about to make it uh, even more interesting here on this show. Uh, we go to South Carolina where a truck driver is accused of stealing $80,000 worth of poultry from an employer. I don't know if you've ever needed chicken nuggets that bad before in your life, Jess, but this guy did. Um, <laughs> he then sold them to an interested buyer or buyers before getting caught during a random traffic stop. Busted with a bunch of poultry. That's right. And hot poultry at that. 
A South Carolina truck driver was charged after being accused of stealing and selling his shipment instead of dropping it off at the designated locations. 55-year-old Christopher Thomas was arrested on Saturday, November 25th and charged with breach of trust with fraudulent intent, according to the Sumter County Sheriff's Office. He was transported to a local jail with a $50,000 surety bond. Uh, officials say Thomas was working for Pilgrim's Pride and instructed to deliver an estimated 41,000 pounds of chicken at two sites in Milton, Georgia. The shipment was worth approximately $80,000. Thomas of Florence, South Carolina, sold the majority of the chicken after making drop-offs to several buyers before he was stopped by authorities who had received a tip about his alleged activity. Deputies went to a location where Thomas planned to make an exchange. When they arrived at the scene, they conducted a traffic stop and executed a search. According to authorities, when deputies looked through the truck, they discovered cases of stolen frozen chicken from his employer. He was then taken into custody and could face up to 10 years behind bars. He was arrested with approximately seven pallets loaded with 215 cases of chicken weighing 8,000 pounds remaining. The sheriff's office said it is believed that Thomas sold about 33,000 pounds of chicken. Oh, my gosh. I just my brain is like, what happens to this guy when he goes to jail and he's like sentenced for 10 years? And then you're in there with all the like actual criminals and they're like, what are you in for? And you're like, I stole a bunch of chicken wings. (laughs) I stole the chicken (laughs) and I sold it. He probably gets mad respect on the inside. You think? I feel like he probably gets picked on. You think? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Moving that kind of weight in chicken. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there's a lot of respect for a guy who can handle his chicken like that. I think so. (laughs) Pardon me in the chest. Holy cow, I'll give you one of these. There you go. (laughs) For handling his chicken like that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, A worker at Pilgrim's Pride spoke to WIS-TV under anonymity, saying that something similar has happened before, seemingly referring to a case in May where two men were accused of stealing $40,000 worth of chicken breast from Pilgrim's Pride. Um, (laughs) Good Lord. I don't know how you get $80,000 worth of chicken out of the plant in the first place, the worker told the outlet, adding... I'm not sure, entirely sure, uh, he went on to say, uh, how this is happening, to be honest. That's a lot of chicken to be stolen out of there twice. So I really have no idea how they're even doing it and what they're doing to stop it. Earlier this year, an Illinois school employee was charged after officials said she stole $1.5 million worth of food, mainly chicken wings from the district. I remember that story. Wow. What is it with chicken wings? Like, people are really... People, I don't know, willing willing to put their lives on the line. <laughs> people love some chicken. I'm just. I mean, saying. I do. Yeah, I could grub on some chicken right now. I just, I just had it for dinner. Now I'm hungry. Yeah, I had, uh, I had me some succulent chicken breasts. That's a, it's <laughs> the only way I can describe <laughs> it. But yeah, oh yeah, that and some wild rice. I had that. Ooh. Yeah, it was a good dinner. Just saying. Sounds yummy. I just have to brag. <laughs> you hear my stomach growling over here? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's just my <laughs> it's my dinner brag. It's my uh, that's all I got for that. Speaking of stolen stuff here, Jess, uh, I got to ask you. Okay, so if you had a wish list of things you would heist, <laughs> anything you could heist, and it's let's just say I'm going to take a few things out of the out of the 
perspective heist list for you. Okay. okay. It's got to be, it can't be jewelry. It can't be any high-end thing like a car, but it's got to be a, a wish list of things that you would have taken as a kid. Mm, okay. Things I would have taken as a kid. Yeah, but you got to do it as an adult now. What, okay. What would you steal in mass quantities? Well, I first thing that comes to my mind if I can't have jewelry is like Cheetos. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm with yeah. you on that. Yeah. Okay. I love some Cheetos, and you know, as a kid, I wouldn't have stole this. But as an adult, I might heist myself some good wine. Okay, good. So yeah. Cheetos and wine. Okay. I feel like that's a meal, honestly. It kind of is, yeah. yeah. You know, that's what I write to usually. I always, I always say my manuscripts are covered in Cheeto dust and red wine drops and tears. Oh, that's kind of country music poetic right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Cheetos and wine. That's what I would heist. How about you? What would you heist? Hmm. Well, if I got to go back to kid land, it would be... Um, Comic books, mm. uh, comic books, Zots, and remember Zots? They were the yes. the hard candies that had the little fizzy stuff in the middle. We still get them from the candy store. Yeah, yeah. So okay. grape Zots. I'd, I'd take a yep. yeah. I'd take a truckload of grape Zots. And you remember Pop Shop Pop? No. <gasps> oh, Jess. what is that? The pop shop was a, it was like the IPA of soda pop. Okay. Oh, okay. Keeps telling me a shipment has arrived. Evidently it might be pop shop pop. <laughs> um, but okay. So they had like all these, it wasn't really gourmet flavors, but they were gourmet flavors. So you could get like, like key lime pie soda pop and Ooh. like the grapiest grape of the grape, you know? That sounds so good. We didn't have fancy pop like that. I grew up on a farm in like really small town Iowa. Uh -huh. And we had like, it was called Fasco Pop. It was like the off brand from Fairway. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Let me see if I can Get look it at it. in the big leaders. I, I just Googled it though. I'm looking at the pop shop. Okay. Yeah. The pop shop pop. Yeah. And you can get but it you here. You can in the, still get some. You can in the Twin Cities. You can get it here. Uh, it says your soda emporium has it. Um, but there's also, I think there's a, oh, Blue Sun Soda, uh, <laughs> Blue Sun Sh Soda Shop. It's hard to say. They aren't paying us for an ad, but in Spring Lake Park, you can get it still at Blue say Sun. Say that three times really fast. Blue Sun Soda Shop, Blue Sun Soda Shop, Blue Sun Soda Shop. See, when you dare me that? to do it, the broadcaster in me comes out. <laughs> I remember I remember all the tor torture that uh, Roy Finden did with us over at Brown Institute. Just um, needed to challenge you. That's right. That's all you need to do. But the pop shop bottles used to come in 12-ounce bottles, the old-fashioned ones. And actually, I think you can get them. You can get pop shop bottles over at, uh, like, Ace Fratelloni Hardware, I think, has them, too. If you have an Ace Fratelloni. I'm going to just check this out. My kids would love this. Yeah, and they have, like, Lime Ricky. You know what a Lime Ricky is? No, I feel like I'm not living real life. You're telling me all these <sighs> cool things I've never even heard of. Oh, Jess, you got to get the kids this. Uh, they have a, a, a brand called Rocket Blast. It's so good. It's made with cane sugar. 
now. They they make it with cane sugar now. Um, they've got cotton. Okay. They've got cotton candy. Ooh. Oh, I'm telling you, it's it's just the best. Uh, they've got a cream soda, black cherry, pineapple, orange, root beer, bubble gum. Um, they claim it's made in Canada. Is it really made in Canada? That's the first thing that popped up when I Googled it was that I could get it in Canada, but I don't have a passport. So I'm glad you said we could get it around here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I'm going to totally get this. It's going under the tree this year. They used to, they used to, um, they used to have commercials for it all the time when we were kids here in, in the in the Twin Cities. Well, they're saying here that it's available at Walmart, or you can order it through Walmart. I don't know. Anyways, we're spending way too much time on Pop Shop. But so, yeah, so comic books, if I had to choose three, comic books, Zots, Grape Zots, and Pop Shop. Pop Shop Pop. Those would be the three things. Now, I, I did this lengthy setup for one story. <laughs> <laughs> that this woman stole $800 worth of Barbie toys and led cops on a high-speed chase. Whoa. Now, Barbie's hot right now. She is hot right now. And I'm thinking that $800 worth of Barbie toys is probably, what, $10? I mean, they are pretty expensive, but I don't know if they're that expensive. Maybe $800. Depends on what you get. Like, if you're getting the Barbie, like, car, Barbie dream house, the I mean, you're getting, like... One Barbie dream house, one Barbie car. Yeah. Maybe a Barbie family. Right. So, right. I yeah. mean, it's not that much stuff. It really not is. Not that much. After stealing $800 worth of Barbie toys from a Buffalo area Walmart, a New York woman led police on a hundred plus mile an hour chase. Oh, gosh. That's a little bit faster than the mobile home chase. Just saying. <laughs> uh, cops say that 20 year old. I believe it's Emoni Thompson. It might be Emony, but it, I don't know. E-M-O-N-I? Emony or Emoni? I like Emoni. Let's go with that. Let's go with Emoni. Uh, swiped the Barbie hall Monday afternoon from a Walmart Supercenter in Lockport. After walking out of the re retailer, Thompson departed in a 2016 Ford Escape. I'm impressed that she got a Ford Escape from 2016 above 100 miles an hour. Yeah, that is impressive. Yeah, that according to the New York State Police. After officers spotted Thompson's car, they activated emergency lights and sought to have her pull over. Instead, Thompson had other ideas. She continued to flee, hitting speeds in excess of 100 miles an hour. I bet the steering wheel was shaking. Oh, the whole thing was shaking. <laughs> it was shaking like she was having a seizure. <laughs> Uh, citing public safety concerns, cops say they discontinued the chase, but located the Buffalo resident the following day and arrested her for larceny, fleeing an officer, and multiple traffic offenses. Thompson was issued an appearance ticket and is due in Lockport Court. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> I cannot. Uh, next month. Uh, it is unclear whether the Barbie merchandise was recovered or whether the stolen goods included a dream house or any products featuring Ken, Barbie's reported boyfriend, or her sister Skipper. That's another one you got to say 10 times fast. Sister <laughs> Skipper, sister Skipper, sister Skipper, sister Skipper. You're so good at this. Well, it's it's the Roy Finden. You know, if you would have, you don't remember Roy Finden, do you? Mm -mm. Nope. Um, Roy Finden was on Channel 5 on KSTP. And Roy had oh, a very, up here in the cities. Yeah, he was a he wasn't a meteorologist. He was a weatherman. There was a difference. Ooh. A meteorologist is certified. A weatherman is just a regular broadcaster who pointed at a weather map. 
and told you what the weather was going to be. They're saying I could be a weatherman. You could. You could be a weatherman. So all you have to do is just point and smile and look at the weather map and tell people what the weather is going to be. Well, Roy was a weatherman, but he, he had great enunciation. And he would have us sit in, in class at Brown Institute and say, furniture barn, furniture barn, furniture barn. <laughs> we had to say it over and over and over again. <laughs> furniture barn, furniture barn, furniture barn. And he had to, it was all about enunciation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Temperature, temperature, temperature. It's not temperature. It's temperature. Well, it's serving you well because you're really knocking it out of the park with these alliterations and difficult combinations of words that you're saying tonight. Why, thank you, Jessica. The temperature currently in Minneapolis, St. Paul is 33 degrees. Quite impressive. Thank you. He would be proud. Uh, I don't know. He always gave me a weird look. I think it was my hairstyle back when I was in his class (laughs) when I had hair. I'm going to give myself one of those. A stuttering rim shot. You know, rim shot, I've learned through this show, rim shot means something completely different in England. Does it mean something bad? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so every time I say rim shot, the people in England giggle. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of rim shot, let's go to a detention center in Florida, shall we? <laughs> let's go. Where rim shots are probably quite enjoyable. <laughs> A Florida man is arrested for kidnapping after not stopping at a Hickory detention center. Oh, my. Yeah. Let me explain. Uh, By the way, I got to thank Tony for a couple of these stories. I've got a a list of people that I thank for some of these stories, uh, Jessica, because this segment practically puts itself together these days. I kid you not. I love that. The listeners send in the good stuff. They do. They do. Uh, I've got to thank Tom. I've got to thank Tony. Uh, also this week, uh, let's see. Who else are we thanking this week? Uh, this week, we are thanking uh, Tom, Tony. I think we're also thanking... Well, we'll get to it at the end of the program. I don't want to... I don't want right. to... Tom this. and Tony so far. Thank Tom you. Tom and Tony so far. Thank you very much. A Florida man was arrested in, is it Iredell or Iredell County in Florida? No, this is Iredell. Iredell? 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 I think this is in Statesville, North Carolina. That's where it's coming out of. But a Florida man was arrested in that county Thursday for quitting in the middle of his job transporting prisoners to detention centers. According to that county's sheriff's office, the owner of the inmate transport company called deputies to tell them about the van driven by 21-year-old Joshua Pinkay? Really? Uh, The Orlando, Florida resident reportedly had four inmates in the locked cargo area of the of the van and one other employee was traveling in the van hmm. through text messages pin k reportedly told the owner that he was quitting his job in the middle of the trip and refusing to stop at the intended destination with the prisoners oh that's a no-no yeah, you don't want to... No notice. Just quitting. Taking these guys with me. Yeah, you don't want to take the prisoners with you. You you, <laughs> you want to drop them off at their designated destination. Drop them off and then quit. Yeah, yeah. You want to finish your job. 
Uh, deputies say they stopped the van on Interstate 40 near mile marker 154 east of I-77. They detained both employees and ensured all inmates were secured in the rear of the van. The transport company had reportedly been hired by various law enforcement agencies outside North Carolina. Deputies say Pin K was supposed to stop at a location in Hickory with the inmates, but had refused to stop and continue traveling into Iredell County. I'm just going to call it right here, Iredell. Uh, Pin K was charged with five counts of felony second-degree kidnapping and felony larceny by employee. He's being held in the county jail without bond i wonder what the plan was like when he got to wherever he was going what was he going to do with all the dudes in the back start his own boy band i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i mean what else do you do with convicted felons the backseat boys there you go (laughs) the backseat boys brilliant jess All right. I got to show you a picture here, Jess. Here you go. Take a look at this guy. You tell me, do you think he mm-hmm. uh, he went on the straight and narrow after being released from jail? I feel like no. The answer is definitely no. <laughs> definitely no. All right. Based on, uh, based on, what do they call it? Profiling? I think Jess just profiled this guy. I think I did. I feel bad. No, don't. Because I'm about to read a story. That <laughs> I, made, I made a judgment on him based on his... His appearance. You're 100% dead on, dear. Here we go. <laughs> a convicted felon is arrested weeks after being released. <laughs> so you just basically, we'll say you made a psychic call and, and like Miss Cleo, uh, you know. You, it just looked a little mischievous. It was the eyes. Look mischievous. This kid looks like he was hit between the eyes with a baseball bat. I mean, yeah, he looks, I mean, kind of looks like he's on something. I think that's why I thought. Yeah. I wasn't going to do so well. No, you you, you hit it right on the head there. (laughs) A man who was paroled from prison on a grand theft auto charge just weeks ago has been arrested again. Surprise, surprise. We got to thank Tony for the story, too. This time for riding a stolen electric bike and possessing a stolen vehicle in Riverside. 26-year-old Justin (laughs) Evans was paroled on October 31st. That's right, he got out on Halloween. But on Tuesday, he found himself in police custody again, according to the Riverside Police Department. According to police, officers near the Lowe's Home Improvement Store on Magnolia Avenue found a Jeep that had been reported stolen from UC Irvine. That's right, we're in California. A couple days prior, no one in the vehicle, but it did contain a black-and-white Trek e-bike, which means what? Not only did he steal a vehicle... He stole an electric bike as well. All right. Yeah. It's, guy's busy. It's what we call a twofer in the business, Jess. <laughs> After staking out the Jeep for about an hour, they spotted Evans on that e-bike, police said. And when they made contact, they found the stolen Jeep's keys in his possession. Not bright. He was arrested and booked into jail and, uh, to hopefully go back to prison where he can finish learning his lesson, police said. Because <laughs> evidently they thought they did such a great job the first time he was in jail. Yeah, yeah. going to get a little learning in there. That's right. Evans faces charges of receiving stolen property and possessing a stolen vehicle. He is being held at the Southwest Detention Center without bail. He was due to appear in the Riverside Hall of Justice without the Super Friends on Thursday. You remember <laughs> the Hall of Justice? Yeah. Yeah. Just whenever some law enforcement people call themselves the hall of justice (laughs) i expect to hear meanwhile at the hall of justice (laughs) 
and then see some superheroes sitting around a table having coffee. That's how I see it too. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever think that maybe that superheroes are somewhere having coffee at a hall of justice? They must be. They're real, right? Everything you read in your comic books is real. Yeah. Yeah. And then people are getting away with stuff because they're having coffee around a table. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the problem is. All the superheroes are too busy having coffee. And their little screen doesn't work. They're not getting the transmission that we're all in trouble. (laughs) That's the problem. We're going to get into uh, one of my favorite segments. By the way, at the end of the program here, Jess, at the end of Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals, we do have our Not Safe for Work. Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is... I remember that from last time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. quite spicy today. Quite saucy. Ooh, okay. Or some liquid. I don't know. Am I I old enough for this? I mean... I I don't think so. We may have to ask you to leave the room, ma'am. Just saying. Um, But before that, we're going to do the food portion... Get that out of the way. Ooh, yes, okay. we have a food portion today. We started a little bit with the chicken. We, we, you know, you always start with chicken. It has been a theme. There's yeah. been a lot of food in this one. We gave you the appetizer. We had chicken before, okay. but we're gonna we're gonna actually continue with chicken. I mean, because chicken on more top chicken. Of, yeah, chicken on top of chicken. You know, it's you can't go wrong, <laughs> right? Wait, is this the not safe for work part? Chicken no, on no, top of chicken, no. it's getting racy. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, no. Uh, I'll tell you when we get to the not safe for work. We're, okay, we're, okay. We are almost there. Uh, we're we're about what are we? Uh, uh, we're about four stories away. So no, but we're st- we're going to continue with chicken. We started with chicken, stealing chicken. Now we're going to talk about a little bit of hot grease that goes with the chicken. I am intrigued. <laughs> yeah, we're going to Macon, Georgia. Macon, Georgia. Okay. Yeah where a Macon man is sentenced to three years in prison for throwing hot grease on a Popeye's employee. Sure, sure didn't love that chicken from Popeye's then, did he? <laughs> a Macon man pleaded guilty on Monday in Bibb County Superior Court for throwing a pot of hot grease on a man in a Popeye's restaurant. 25-year-old Jordan Alexander Duncan was sentenced by Judge David L. Mincy III. It's a very judge-like name. It is. David Elmore. You know, if you have the third at the end, you have to do something really fancy in your life. Mm, my dad's a third and he drives a bus. <laughs> That's fancy. <laughs> you fancy a fancy bus, bus right? Yes. <laughs> Hello, fancy bus driver. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. He wears a beret. Yes. He's fancy. <laughs> the kind he found at a secondhand store. <laughs> I had to tie it all together. So Judge uh, David L. Mincy III sentenced Jordan Alexander Duncan to three years in prison after he pleaded guilty to aggravated battery in the grease-throwing incident. According to the story laid out by prosecuting attorneys, Duncan walked into the chicken eatery. What do you think of Popeye's? Do you think of it as a chicken eatery? I will now. Okay, good. Yeah. Just think of it as a disgusting (laughs) grease pit. (laughs) Fast food joint. Yeah. Uh, Duncan walked into the chicken eatery on Mercer University Drive in November of 2021 to pick up his last paycheck from where he worked, which would be there at the chicken eatery grease pit. (laughs) When Duncan came into the restaurant, he grabbed a pot, stuck it into the fryer, and threw the grease onto Kelvin Early, an employee. How? 
That is no way to say, give me my check. Early suffered second and third degree burns. It was unclear in the account laid out in court why Duncan may have thrown the grease at Early, but Duncan, his attorney, and his mother all testified that he suffered from some mental health issues and substance abuse problems. Still not an excuse. Yeah, I feel like there's really not a good reason to throw a bucket full of grease on someone. No. Duncan said in court that he understood that he needed to change and that he was committed to getting there. He and his mother asked that he be sentenced to a rehabilitation program in addition to his prison time. Early was not in court for Duncan's sentencing, though prosecutors said he did want some form of punishment for Duncan. In addition to prison time, special conditions of the sentence told Duncan to stay away from both Early and the Popeye's restaurant. How about we just stay away from Friars completely? That's Yeah, that keep seems... that guy away from the grease. <laughs> yes. How about a nice job sewing for the rest of his life? Oh, wait, no. Ne- no, needles are needles. In. Needles could be dangerous. No, needles. Um, Legoland. Maybe, maybe a bakery. Could he do a bakery? No, like... ovens. Put, putting people no. on hot substances. Uh, Legoland. All right. I think that would be safe. Unless he got mad and knocked over the giant Lego dinosaur on someone. Yeah, that's true. I feel like no place is really safe for him. Build a bear? Okay. okay. Build a bear. Build a bear. That could work. All right. Yes. Good. We continue on with our um, our food extravaganza today. More chicken? No, we need something to wash it down with, Jess. <laughs> and earlier you mentioned that your books are made with Cheetos and... Wine. Of course. We go to Wawa. You ever been to a Wawa? No, but I love the sound of them. The Wawa. The, oh, the Wawa. The Wawa is heaven on earth. Um it's like fancy gas station grocery store type yes. situation. Yes. Yeah. That makes the best uh, grinders and hoagies on the planet. Ooh. Where do they have them at? They don't have them around here in Minnesota. East Coast. Okay. Yeah. It's a it's a Pennsylvania Philly type deal. You have to find one next time I'm out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A disgruntled Wawa customer knocks a man out because he refused to pay for her wine. <laughs> so a woman knocked a man out yeah this time we're going to florida though there are wawas in florida oh and we're going and this to, time it's florida woman it's florida woman not, we, yep. not florida man not florida man we go to sanford florida where a woman was arrested after she assaulted a couple at a sanford wawa after they refused to pay for her wine you ever been so aggressive you've knocked somebody out over your wine, Jess? <laughs> no. I'm pretty chill, so um, okay, I kind of can't fathom that. But you ever looked? She at, must have been having a bad day. She really needed that wine. You ever looked at the hubby and just been like, "You better pick this up, or I'm knocking you the f out." <laughs> it's gonna cold cock you and watch you fall down. <laughs> That's never, that's not where the kid gets the running back skills from. It's not from your side of the family. No, no, no. Mm. Okay. Not me. Okay. Uh, 31 year old Angelique Dion Glenn. I'll show you her picture. You can, you can see she's got that knockout look to her. And I'm not talking about, she looks like a knockout. She's got a knockout look to her. (laughs) 
Was there, in fact, I'll just show you, and then that way you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. She looks like she could kick my butt. Yeah, she looks like she could kick my butt. Oh yeah, she yeah. looks mad too. Yeah, she looks yep. like she needs a couple of bottles of wine. Not yeah. just one, not just a glass. It's little meditation and wine. <laughs> meditation. She's a tranquilizer darts is what she needs. <laughs> Uh, 31-year-old Angelique Dion Glenn was arrested on two counts of aggravated battery with a deadly weapon following the Thursday incident. A woman who was with her boyfriend told police that Glenn had accidentally placed her wine bottle with their order. Yeah, accidentally. <laughs> Air quotes. Yep. Once the couple realized they paid for Glenn's wine, they got their money refunded. According to arrest records, Glenn reportedly got upset and made a statement saying, why can't you just pay for my bottle of wine? <laughs> she began to threaten the woman and her boyfriend before taking a wine bottle and striking the woman in the head with it. Oh, my God. It's not that serious. It's never that serious. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. The woman told police after she was hit with the bottle that Glenn hit the woman's boyfriend in the face with the wine bottle, knocking him unconscious. Oh Dear God. Oh, my, the mental picture of this scene. Glenn, crazy. I know, right? Glenn allegedly continued to make threats towards a woman's boyfriend, threatening to kill them as she was walking out to the parking lot. Stay classy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it should be stay glassy. I'm not sure. <laughs> it is wine. The cashier also told police she witnessed Glenn hit the couple with the wine bottle, attempt to leave the store, and return to strike the man with the wine bottle again. He came back for more. Well, she needed an extra hit. I'm not even going to hit the rim shot on that. She sounds darling. Mm -hmm. According to police, Glenn called an Uber who refused to drive her, so she left the Wawa by foot. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn was arrested and taken to the Seminole County Jail. Wow. You know, I hear the, uh, the twins need a new designated hitter for the season. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we yep. found her. Yep, she's batting a thousand. Just has to hit with a bottle of wine. That's right. She can't use a bat, but boy, you put a <laughs> bottle of wine in her hands and she's hitting anything that moves. <laughs> oh, it's a home run. <laughs> Look at her. Is that a bottle of Chardonnay? <laughs> Boom. Dun, 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 dun. Go, Glenn, go. <sighs> mm. <laughs> I tell you, it takes all kinds. It does. Keeps life interesting. No, I think the moral of that story is, though, if anybody sticks their wine in my order, I'm just going to let them have it. <laughs> I was just going to ask you, if someone uh, <laughs> someone looking like she was looking in that mug shot were to look at you and say, why can't you pay for my wine? Would you go, I don't see why I, can. I can't. Yeah, I can. <laughs> hey, it's only 10 bucks. Although I have a feeling that the wine that they were paying for is probably 350 <laughs> I was going to say, it probably was it. You know, not the most expensive wine. I mean, honestly, even if she didn't look like she was going to murder me, I probably would have just been like, eh, Merry think, Christmas. I think it was probably like a five buck chuck. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those deals. 
Too she, bad it wasn't a box of wine. That'd be less painful. Right? <laughs> I can't knock someone out with a box of wine. <laughs> she probably took the bag out of the Franzi and swiped them with it. <laughs> <laughs> See, this just increases my love of boxed wine. It's just safer all the way around. It is, yeah. Hit me with a bladder of wine. Sploosh. <laughs> you know, it, it's like getting hit with a with a wine balloon. Uh, well, that sounds kind of fun. Getting hit with a wine balloon. Everybody wins. I mean, you just open your mouth, except for cho- a choking hazard. I mean, other than that. Asphyxiate on the balloon. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like an adult, an adult uh, birthday party hazard. We're gonna have a wine balloon fight later. It's like a it's like a birthday party in Napa. Anywho, we continue with the food theme, Jess. Yes. What's next? Well, dessert. No, we're gonna continue with how we how you write your books. If it's not wine, <laughs> it's Cheetos or potato chips. That works. I like those too. Right. Except for when someone's mad over not sharing their potato chips, in which they get shot in the face. What? <laughs> That's right, Jess. A 31-year-old gets shot in the face for not sharing potato chips, according to police. Holy cow. I don't even know. I like don't even have words for what you just said. I know. It's like word jumble, isn't it? It's like, I don't want to laugh because it's horrible, but also like, I don't have another reaction. All right. We go to Akron, Ohio, where police in Ohio are investigating after they said they spoke with a person who was shot in the face for not sharing his potato chips. Ruffles have ridges and somebody's really ruffled right now. (laughs) Officers with the Akron Police Department responded to, I believe it's Summa Health Akron City Hospital. Around 9 p.m., it could be Summa, too. There's two M's there. Around 9 p.m. on Tuesday night, W-O-I-O, it's Woio. Get it? I get it. Yep. Reported the 31-year-old victim had taken himself to the hospital after he was shot in the face? I mean, I'm glad that they could speak to him afterwards because you don't always survive getting shot in the face. Do you think as he's sitting there and he's a little hungry, they go, hey, do you want some chips? And he goes, no. Um, no. <laughs> um, Man, what did she shoot him with that? I mean, wasn't, okay, carry wasn't, on. It wasn't Prime good processing. looks. <laughs> it wasn't good looks. I know that. Uh, officers reportedly found the man with a gunshot wound to the face that was deemed non-life-threatening. Boy, that's an oxymoron right there, isn't it? Shot to the yeah. face that's non-life-threatening. Yeah, and my brain is like, as a as a girl that grew up with guns, like, what gun could you use to shoot someone in the face that would just, like, they could just walk away and, like, be like, hey, I got shot in the face. Had to be a twenty-two. Police. I, said, that would be my guess. Yeah, police said the victim told them he was confronted by an unknown man outside of Lusty's Adventure on Stanton Avenue. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He said the other man shot him with a handgun after he refused to give him some potato chips. That does sound like word jumble, doesn't it? (laughs) It's crazy. The reported suspect then left the scene in a vehicle. Officials are working to identify the man in question. 
Uh, I'll give the number out because I want to know if somebody can find this guy. Anyone with further information has been urged to contact the Akron Police Department Detective Bureau at 330-375-2490. The potato chip bandit. That's a madman. Yeah. Evidently, the Joker wants potato chips. <laughs> well, if Batman would get done sitting around drinking coffee with his friends. Yeah, right. One more tasty, tasty food item, and then we'll get into not safe for work. This will be your transition into the naughty, naughty stories. Oh, no. <laughs> what food product, Jess? Could you say out loud that could either be a naughty story or a delicious food product? I mean, a wiener? Ah, you're very close! Gosh, this is why I love having you. An Oscar Mayer? <laughs> yeah, this is why I love having you on the show. You're very close when you say wiener. Uh, what else? It's in that family. Okay. Uh Kielbasa sausage. There you go, a sausage. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for playing our game. Your year supply of turtle wax is on its way. A husband linked to a domestic sausage battery. Yes, I said domestic sausage battery. <laughs> oh. Can't even breathe. I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> Excuse me while I whip this out. I'm going to beat you with my sausage. (laughs) A 64-year-old woman, Jess, was struck in the face by a thrown pork product. (laughs) Oh, man. That's right. She got it in the face from a sausage. I mean, that could leave a mark. (laughs) I'll just let that marinate for a bit. A judge has ordered a Florida man. Of course, we're going to Florida because where else do you want to get hit in the face with someone's sausage than in Florida? (laughs) It's great weather. A judge has ordered a Florida man to have no contact with his wife following his arrest for allegedly striking her in the face with a thrown sausage. Notice they had to say thrown sausage in this story so as to not misconstrue anything. During a verbal altercation Saturday afternoon, 61-year-old Ray Allen allegedly threw the sausage, presumably pork sausage, at his spouse. Oh, the details. It is. The said sausage struck the 64-year-old victim on the right side of the face. So he's (laughs) coming at her from the left. According to an arrest affidavit, EMS workers responded to the couple's home in St. Petersburg and washed the victim's eye out with a saline solution because the sausage was salty, Jess. Mm-hmm. I can't. I just, I don't, I can't stop laughing. <laughs> By the way, this is the face of a man who throws his sausage in your eye. Well, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he looks nice enough. I mean, I wouldn't have suspected him to do such a thing. Yeah, well, he loves whipping out his sausage and throwing it at you. He doesn't saying. look as angry as the last lady showed me. No, no, no. She was very angry. Allen was arrested for domestic battery and booked into the county jail. He was released 
yesterday from custody on his own recognizance. Allen has pleaded not guilty to the misdemeanor charge, while a circuit court judge issued an order barring him from contacting the victim. Cops indicated that alcohol may have been a factor in the yeah. 2.50 in the afternoon confrontation. So he started at wow. noon, evidently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's 5 o'clock somewhere. That's right. By the way, the sausage in question in the battery was not seized. <laughs> so the sausage. Well, I hope somebody put it in the fridge so they didn't waste it. Or in the freezer. I mean, either way. You're going to want to put that sausage on ice there, soldier. <laughs> Just saying. That according to Officer Vincent Calvino, who evidently got to touch the sausage in question. Just saying. Did he get to taste it? Ah! <laughs> I had to hit that button twice in succession. It was oh. so good. Okay, now is that time. If you thought that was double entendre city, now is the time where we do the not safe for work. If you thought that wasn't safe for work, uh, the not safe for work portion of our program. So if you've got little kids in the room, for some reason, why you didn't escort them out during that last story, I have no idea. Um, but now is the time to escort them out. If you're at work, turn down your listening devices or put in your earbuds, one or the other. It's time now for NSFW our not safe for work portion of dumb crime, stupid criminals. Here we go in five, four, three, two, one. Oh, Jess, guess what? What? We found the most demented man on earth to start out our first story. Mm, Yeah. We're going to a hospital where this particular hospital guard decided he was going to have sex with a corpse. What? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Not just any old corpse. Oh, no, 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 Jess. It was a corpse in the morgue freezer. Whoa. And it wasn't a young corpse. Oh, no, no, no. It was a corpse of a 79-year-old woman. What? He likes them older. Layer after layer gets worse and worse. (laughs) It does. It it wasn't good. A hospital security guard had sex with a 79-year-old woman's corpse, according to Arizona police, who alleged the crime took place inside a morgue freezer last month. Investigators yesterday arrested 46-year-old Randall Bird. He was a Randy Bird, he was. (laughs) He was a Randy Bird. (laughs) On multiple counts of crimes against the dead person, which is a felony, (laughs) there's no misdemeanor there. You're not going back. Until his recent firing, Bird worked at Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix, where he was responsible for transporting bodies to the hospital morgue. I'm going to put a very morbid thought into your brain. Okay. You already have, but let's layer it up with some more. Let's layer it up a little. You ready? (laughs) This man worked at Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix, transporting bodies to the hospital morgue. Just got caught having sex with a corpse. Yeah. How often do you think he did that? Not his first time. No. Definitely. No. Cops Ugh. alleged that is where Bird, it says here in the scene at right, I'm going to show you this man's picture. Tell me oh, this. Man. Tell me this guy <laughs> isn't a dead body screwer. I just, I mean, he does not look okay. No, he looks like he has issues. Just saying. Would you describe for our audience, Jess, what you see when you see this man? 
I mean, put him back up. Okay. Let's see here. here. You tell you tell our audience when I show you this picture what you think. All right. Describe him for well, our audience. So he doesn't have any hair on his head, but he, and he has some facial hair. His lips are pursed together really tight. Mm -hmm. He's got like these bags under his eyes, and he just looks like he kind of wants to rip your throat out yeah. and then have sex with your neck. <laughs> then have sex with your neck? Is that what you said? That's pretty <laughs> accurate. Know. That is very accurate. There's not a happy bone in his body unless that happy no. bone wants to go into your corpse. <laughs> just saying yeah 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 mm -hmm. <sighs> okay so wow. cops allege that is where bird abused the corpse at that medical center of an elderly woman which had been inside a body bag according to a probable cause statement investigators say two witnesses reported spotting bird inside the morgue freezer around 5 30 a.m sweating profusely and acting very nervous on october 24th additionally bird's zipper was wide open oh my god mm. his uniform was disheveled and his belt was atop a gurney where a bagged deceased body was placed oh my gosh can you imagine being the person who came upon this scene <laughs> no. I'm traumatized just hearing you talk about it. I cannot even imagine. Yeah. The morgue doors had been locked from the inside, according to cops. The body bag, which held victim, had been completely unzipped open, and the corpse was face down, and the victim's oh. hospital gown had been rolled up above her belly button area, exposing her naked body from the waist down. When the witnesses entered the morgue, they told police Bird sought to cover up the dead woman's body by pulling down her gown. I think it's a little too late. I'm afraid you're busted. Yep. Bird claimed to have had a medical episode while inside the freezer and could not recall what had transpired afterwards. <laughs> Weakest excuse in the book. However, cops say Bird's DNA was found on the corpse of the woman who had died of natural causes. Post-mortem rib fractures were also detected on the victim's body. Oh, my gosh. So he was, like, roughing her up? Dude goes hard. He goes hard in the paint. Just saying. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Bird, who is scheduled for a preliminary hearing next month, is free on supervised release, believe it or not, until that court appearance. He's no, not. that guy should not be among any other population of people other than people in prison. <laughs> right? But he's he's free on his own recognizance. Oh, heaven uh, help. You could, like, walk upon that guy in the grocery store. He's probably in the meat freezer getting busy. <laughs> oh, no. A hospital spokesperson said that co-workers had identified and reported concerning behavior of an employee in the hospital morgue, which prompted an internal investigation, the filing of a report with law enforcement, and the firing of Bird. And we talk we about... We should, like, rape kit every corpse in that morgue now. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? <laughs> Listen, we've definitely done this before. <laughs> I think so. I think so. And finally, our final story, as if that wasn't disturbing enough. Tell me this one is not worse. <laughs> oh, this one's worse. Oh, no. no. It's the only reason I have you on, Jess, is just to see how much I can gross <laughs> you out. 
finally on Not Safe for Work and True Crime Tuesday. And Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals. Gunfire erupts after a golden shower. Just letting that sink in for a minute. Charges are filed following a $300 days in encounter. Just remember, Jess, if you ever feel like ordering a golden shower, you can do so at the days in. I don't know why you would. <laughs> You're kind of a classy lady, Jess. I don't think that it would ever sounds work. fancy. It yeah. does sound fancy. It does, doesn't it? it? Sounds like something you would see in a pasture with unicorns. A nice golden <laughs> shower. It seemed like a straightforward arrangement. I give you $300. You urinate on me in the bathroom of the Days Inn across from the Ryder Rental Office in York, Pennsylvania. <laughs> okay, so I was thinking of like, you know, a shower, like, you know, encased in gold. No. Okay. <laughs> no, we're, we're. Yeah. Talking out of there. Okay. About PP play here, Jess. <laughs> I understand any of this necrophilia people peeing on people okay carry on but while the pay for spray arrangement appears to have gone as planned inside room 140 during a subsequent encounter in the hotel parking lot a 66 year old man who paid for the female provider or paid the female provider fired a shot at the woman's nissan rogue as she drove away <laughs> Okay, so room 40, 140 at the Days Inn in what town? Because we're never, ever staying in that room. That's so nasty. York, Pennsylvania, which used okay. to host Phenomenology. Have you stayed there? Not at the Days Inn. I've stayed in other <laughs> hotels in York, but not the Days Inn. No, don't stay there. I didn't know that PP Play was available in York. <laughs> hmm. It's the, not. It's not. The gunman, 66-year-old... Get ready for this. 66-year-old David Martin Butts. Spelled like it sounds. Stop, this is not real. It's real. <laughs> Apparently believed that 34-year-old Brittany... Abbasid? I think is what her name is, had swiped his wallet after she finished urinating on him while he laid in the tub. Let me show you what Brittany looks like here. This is uh, this is what $140 gets you if you need to be pissed on. Okay. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> That's the $140 pisser right there. Oh, so. man. Well, I guess at least they did it in the bathtub, not like in the bed. Well, you don't want to you don't want a damage deposit there, Jess. That's for no. sure. That's true. Yeah. According to a probable cause statement, both Butts and Abbasid, uh, in separate police interviews, confirmed that the terms of their days in golden shower happened two weeks ago. Abbasid said she was parked outside eating potato chips. <laughs> when Butts confronted her and fired a single bullet, leaving a hole in a passenger side door. Well, Butts said that he feared Abbasid may have been reaching for a weapon while inside her car, he didn't recall shooting his gun. Oh, but he recalled the, the golden shower just fine. <laughs> Cop, 
Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry I cut you off there. No, I just she's reaching in and eating her bag of chips, and he thinks she's going for a weapon. Yeah. Mm. I hope she washed her hands after. You know, I was just thinking the exact same thing, but I wasn't going to say anything. I'm glad <laughs> I'm you sorry. said. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. Cops recovered a nine millimeter cartridge casing at the scene and later seized a nine millimeter Sig Sauer handgun from Butts, who lives in Harrisburg, which is about 30 miles from the Days Inn. Butts was charged with multiple assault counts, reckless endangerment, and patronizing a prostitute. He's free on $75,000 bond, scheduled for a January 4th preliminary hearing. Abbasid uh, was. No, I'm not saying Appleseed, but Abbasid <laughs> was charged with several misdemeanors, uh, including promoting prostitution and theft. She was freed from jail after posting $5,000 bond and is also set for a January 4th court appearance. Abbasid, who appears to have worked as an escort for more than a decade, received a $16,040 Paycheck Protection Program loan in 2021, believe it or not. Her, indus wow. her industry, get this. Jess, her industry at the time is listed in federal records as independent artists, writers, and performers. What? Who knew what that? kind of performance? It was, you know what? I think I know what her art was. When she went to fill out the application. So yeah. she put down independent artists, writers, and performers. When they asked, what is your performance? She said, public piss play. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> and nailed her. <laughs> so that'll do it. That's uh, that is dumb crime, stupid criminals for this week. Did you have a good time? That was a good one. I mean, I'm I'm gonna have to go purge my mind of the last two <laughs> stories, but the rest of them were great. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jess. I, I knew part of it might scar you, but. I know. It's it's so bad. I might have to go watch a Hallmark movie or something, which is so not like me, but something, I think you know, so. normally it's like, you know, a murder show before bed. I, I think I have to go watch Candace Cameron Burr, you know, fall in love with someone under a mistletoe or something awful like Although that. You're not safe from that anymore. <laughs> Did you see the story that uh, there's now the first ever Hallmark Christmas movie with a sex scene in it? What? Yes. Well, it's about time. <laughs> it's about time Santa gets his claws on, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I will. Maybe I will watch a Hallmark movie. See, huh? Uh, they're getting a little <laughs> racier over there at the Hallmark Channel. Just saying. Uh, so remind people again what you got going on coming up. All right. I've got to look at my calendar. I've oh, got sorry. one coming up in just a couple weeks on a Saturday. I believe it's the 16th in... St. Paul, we have an event at the Manor House. There's two ticket options between 7 and 9 and 10 and midnight for a paranormal investigation. And then coming up the first weekend in January, that first Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we have an event at the Palmer House with Ghost Stories, Inc. and doing a paranormal creative retreat. Nice. And again, we'll have links in the description of this program so you can join Jess and Ghost Stories, Inc. on those trips. Jess, Thanks I want to thank, me here. Oh, thank you. You beat me to the punch. <laughs> I wanted to thank you so much for joining us here today. Hopefully tomorrow we got Bruiser back and we'll have Supernatural News and Parish here for tomorrow. So for Jessica Freeberg, I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for joining us today. For True Crime Tuesday, I want to thank Harry McLean as well. The book, by the way, and I encourage you all to go get it. It is an exciting book. It's an interesting book. The compilation 
of everything. That is Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. The name of the book is The Untold Story of the Killing Spree that Changed America, Starkweather. It is uh, the perspective of someone who was there at the time that the Charles Starkweather uh, killing spree was happening. That link is in the description of this program as well. Folks, you got to go get this book. It is one of the best nonfiction books of 2023. You're going to want to go get it. Uh, testimonials from people such as Catherine Ramsland and Ron Francel. You got to get a copy of this book. It's well worth it. That description or that that link is in the description of this uh, podcast as well. I encourage you to go get that book. Read that book. You're going to enjoy. Again, for Jessica Freeberg, I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for joining us again in the best of true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday.